To select audio navigation, press Enter now. Hello and thank you for downloading the Track One podcast. I'm Mark McManus and my co-host today is Pete Lambert. Hi Pete. Hi, how are you doing? Good, thanks. Are you? Yes, good, thanks. for the long day at work, but now I have a thing of beauty in front of me in the shape of this little box set. So uh, it's uh, things are looking up already. <laughs> yeah, so we're going to talk about the Season 19 Blu-ray box set today. Uh, first of all, last time we spoke it was on The Woman Who Fell to Earth back in October. How does that seem now? It's just that it was in another era. It does, doesn't it? <laughs> um, we had the rest of Series 11 since then. I think we're both really positive about The Woman Who Fell to Earth. How did you fare with the rest of Series 11? Yeah, I mean, I still, I, I, I would say I began on a high and I ended on a high with a bit of a dip in the middle, which is pretty much exactly how I was about Series 10 as well. So, um, uh, yeah, I was I was really happy with what, what we got overall. There, there, um, I thought the um, uh, my favourites by far my standout favourites uh, are the first one, which actually I still think that's a bit underrated. I don't know if it's just because it's a an opening episode, an opening introductory episode, but sometimes people don't don't pay enough attention to them. I still think that's a, just a really good Doctor Who episode, mm-hmm. and uh, and I was very much on the side of the uh, on, on I'm very much a frog lover when it comes yeah. to uh, take it takes you away. That episode absolutely uh, got me uh, in all the good ways. Uh, so that that's probably my favourite uh, of, uh, of the series overall. Yeah, mine too. Yeah, it takes you away. I thought it was a definite definite high point for me. Yeah, um, and I think that one will be. I mean, it was it. I mean. Everything about Doctor Who kind of divides people, doesn't it, or divide, divides the fans. But that one, particular, it was either love it or hate it. Um, but I think it'll be, yeah, you know, kind of history will be quite kind to it. I think. Uh, I think it'll be reevaluated. It's. Uh, I think it's a really strong episode. Yeah, and and I'm just thinking there might be some parallels with um, with another episode from a, a classic series uh, that ended with a, a small sort of slimy creature. Uh, that was reptilian. Uh, I'm not going. I know it's an amphibian. Damn, this is falling to bits, isn't it? I'm, I'm, I was trying to look at a really clever Kinder parable. We'll get to that when we talk about Kinder. But, um, oh, you know, I thought you were talking about Monarch. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, yeah, that's. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know if Stratford Johns could have fitted in the costume for the solid tract. No, uh, but, but he, the way he sort of melts at the end, doesn't he? Um, he sort of melts at the end and just becomes a slimy little thing. I thought that's what you were <laughs> what you were alluding to. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, but, we've uh, we've both bought the season nineteen uh, box set. Um, probably for me is it certainly probably for you the third time in my life of buying this. Yes, it is, isn't it? Yes, <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, uh, possibly that's uh, possibly the fourth actually, having made a few uh, deals in the nineteen eighties to get hold of a few of my favourite stories <laughs> uh, via illicit means uh, with uh, with people of various places in the world. But uh, yeah, this is the third time uh, legitimately paying for it. Yeah, yeah. yeah I suppose the third time I've replaced my. UK gold recordings of it, yeah. and and it, but every time and and I I like to think I'm discerning enough that if I thought this was a ripoff I wouldn't have bought it. If I just thought it was the logo stuck on a pretty box, um, I, I would have had the self restraint. But there is just so much else comes with it, uh, as well as it being a very pretty logo on a very pretty box um, that uh, I, I do feel like I've had good value for money. Yeah, it's it is a, a beautiful object, isn't it? I, I didn't get the season twelve one. Um, because I've said this before, and I didn't realize it was limited edition, and I just thought I'll get it for Christmas. And then uh, by the time I realized it had sold out, 
it had completely yeah. gone from everywhere. So, but I'm yeah, really impressed with the the quality of it. The the little fold out bit at the front is um, is lovely as well. It holds the booklet and you've got the, yeah. the Tardis interior inside there. It's hard to tell, but it, it feels like it's probably going to be fairly durable as well. It, whenever you've got cardboard glued to other bits of cardboard, there's always the risk that it's going to sort of start to bend or peel away. But this feels fairly sturdy. Um, yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, and the, the the artwork and everything isn't, is is lovely. The, the the cover art stuff you've got in the booklet. It really is. Yeah, I think the, the game has just been raised so much. Uh, just every, every time the art. Look, seems to come on in leaps and bounds with every sort of new, every time a new uh, styles re- revealed for for uh, for a new range, they just keep to keep on taking raising their game. It's it's incredible. Yeah, I think I'm right in saying there aren't any faults on the discs like there were with season twelve. Or not that oh yeah, across, yes, they? yeah. They, they learn that lesson there, and yeah. somebody has found what is it, what's the total running length of it? Is it about a few thousand minutes, probably. Somebody has actually done that with a notepad and pen and, and found everything that might have happened before they hit the shops. So, uh, yeah. That, yeah, because it, it was delayed, wasn't it? So I guess they might have... Uh... That's a point. Maybe that's what it was all along. Maybe, yeah, maybe they misspelled Beryl Reed's name and uh, had to burn a few thousand copies of it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Policy control is everything. And they, they haven't sold out this time, have they? It still says limited edition, but... Um, well, it certainly hasn't sold out as quickly as season twelve did. Yeah, and and they're not numbered limited editions, are they? So it could be a limited edition of five million for all. Yeah. <laughs> One day the five million copy will sell, and they will have to uh, put put a lid on it. Yeah. Um, I mean, technically, everything's limited edition, isn't it? It <laughs> will stop offering. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I kind of regret buying twenty of these to flog on eBay now, to be honest. But uh, yeah. <laughs> no, no, don't worry. It will sell out eventually, yeah. and then that can be your pension. <laughs> I'm still planning on, uh, on selling all of my power cassette singles one day. Yeah. Uh, they, they're, they're definitely going to be collector's items. Uh, they're only 99p each at the time. And, uh, yeah, bound to make me rich. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> um, so another good thing is, I was thinking about this, is each time we replace these seasons, they take up less space on the shelf, don't they? It is getting more and more convenient, yeah. But and also, I mean, we are entering the era now when just having having a thing on media Physical media is is become is sort of retro and uh, deluxe and, and not strictly necessary anymore. Mm. So they're really having to. Um, I guess that's what's what's incentivizing them to put so much more effort into the. Uh, well, not, no, I'm sure they put plenty of effort in, in the past, but just more resources into getting everything so lavish and and so many extra features and things specially made for it. Really got to convince us that it is worth buying a thing when we could probably we could all just sit at our computers and watch the episode anytime we wanted through one means or another. Yeah, I've, I've, to me, I found that with the new series is um, I've got them all on DVD, but they're on Netflix. And if I mm-hmm. want to watch one of them, or um, you know, I kind of want to, even doing a podcast and you want to check something one of the episodes, it's far quicker and easier to go into Netflix and, and and they're all on the iPlayer at the moment as well, aren't they? they? They have been for the last um, two or three months. Yeah, and, and I've not seen much about, from what I've seen, of, of, it's strange that they haven't put more effort into, they haven't put this much effort into making us buy this, the, the new series on Blu-ray. As yeah. they have um, these classics, you'd think they would just they would follow the same marketing strategy, but then I guess they're aiming at different people. And, and so uh, that's probably, yeah, it's probably just a different scale. Yeah, there is something about fans and, and a collection, isn't there? That's uh, that's kind of inbuilt. Yeah, yeah. Seems to be. Because I know, uh, cause I know they, they say sort of Doctor and stuff like that books the trend, doesn't it? Of 
you know, kind of physical media um, that they still sell really well. Whereas I guess kind of movies and stuff, are a bit yeah. more disposable, and uh, uh, you might just get a download or kind yeah, because it's been just replaced the rental market, hasn't it? The, yeah, the, the, been yeah. to blockbuster video for a while. <laughs> No, <laughs> it's, it's, you still can't be going to blockbuster video and just flicking through all the cases and then having an argument with your partner about what to hire and not hiring anything and going home. <laughs> it's the magical type of evening that you can no longer get to have anymore. Yeah, this is sad, isn't it? Is, is there one left in the world? Is it um, in Alaska <laughs> on or There is one on Twitter that claims to be the last blockbuster in the world, and they're uh, yeah, they're regularly sort of haunted by occasional ghosts that visit yeah. them. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not entirely sure whether it's real or not. <laughs> I um, I think this is on uh, on last week tonight on Sky Atlantic, the the last remaining one in Alaska, um, and John Oliver bought them a load of props from uh, Russell Crowe movies, uh, <laughs> so they can kind of have some exhibits as well to try and get people in. Um, there we- weirdly is a, a DVD rental shop uh, where my in-laws live in Hartford, yeah, um, in Cheshire. And I always think it's really odd every time I drive past it. Um, but it's still it, uh, going. I mean, they think because it's like a money laundering front, but no, yeah. that's not going to be a very convincing money laundering front, is it? <laughs> <laughs> it's no. arouse suspicion. Yeah. It's, yeah, a tiny little shop, and it's it's got kind of all the latest stuff in. Well, I'd say latest. Last time I was down there a few months ago, they had um, a big rampage kind of um, cardboard cutout in the window and stuff. <laughs> Oh yeah, physical cardboard. Cardboard is is a dying art, but um, but but not not here. Not with not with these lovely Blu-rays. No, no. And I want you to put the discs in. The menu is is beautiful as well. It's um, lovely kind of rendering of the TARDIS console, lovingly recreated as the as you kind of pan around that. It is. It is. Although I do have a bone to pick. Actually, I'm going to go straight in. This is the, pretty one of the few negative things I've got. It takes about 1 minute and 57 seconds on my machine from putting a disc in to actually getting to a menu where you can click a button because you've got your BBC logo, then you've got your Peter Davison reading, telling you which disc it is, fair enough. Mm. Uh, then you've got the press audio, then you've got another logo, and you can't skip it. Yeah. And that's all in one of my, one of my uh, bugbears. Uh, and I, I used to complain endlessly about the, uh, the DVDs taking over a minute to get to, to their uh, menu. And uh, they've obviously listened to me very carefully and decided I'm an annoying person who they want to leave them. Also, it now takes two minutes to get to a point where you can actually make anything play. Um, but, but, is it, but nevertheless, it is lovely. I just, I just wish that it was optional. Yeah. Um, but, but, but yeah, that logo where the, where the, uh, the TARDIS whizzes through the new logo is, is extremely stylish. No one can deny that. It's lovely, isn't it? And in HD, uh, it looks, looks really good as well. Yeah, I like that. Um, and Peter Davison, like you say, introducing the discs and, and inviting you to select audio navigation. Did they do that with Tom and the on the season twelve or not? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, they have. Yeah, they've got the doctor to do it both times. Cool. Yeah, that's uh, it's, it's a nice touch, I think. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Cool. And obviously, it's used for functionality. We can make use of uh, make use of that for, on, on Blu-rays if they've got uh, if they've got sight restrictions. Mm-hmm. They, can, they can still get the most out of it. Yeah, definitely. So, first story in the set, obviously, Cast Revolver. Isn't it? A, it, it it's isn't it weird? Isn't it? It's such a fascinatingly weird way of start of launching a new Doctor. It's just so compared to Robot and Spearhead from Space, which really just clearly get, have a big bad menace on Earth. New Doctor saves the day, and Castorava is just so complicated and strange. Yeah. It's, it, I don't know, it, it's fascinating that they, they went with that, and I think it still makes it really watchable. 
Mm. I, I, I've tended to watch it with Keeper of Traken and Legopolis since it came out in the in the box set with them, the New Beginnings box set. Of course. So this is probably the first time in a while I've watched it standalone like this or, or as the beginning of a season. Yeah. Um, what I was thinking about was, I, I'd read the novelization before I saw the story, um, as with, with most of the, the classic series. I was trying to work out whether I would have spotted that Anthony Ainley is the portrait. Yeah, I don't think I did. I'm going to put my hands up and say I don't think, I'm pretty sure I didn't when I was six and a bit watching it going out yeah. the first time. <laughs> but he was, he was so new to the series then as well, and this was kind of his, his first disguise kind of thing, wasn't it? Um, but I think it's probably his most effective um, alter ego. Yeah. And, yeah, and as you say, yeah, you're not looking for it particularly. Uh, but also, it, it is a character who really does have a a role to play in in that world. So it does all sort of slot into place in its own right. It's not. Uh, and when we get to the other end of the season, we're going to get the exact opposite yeah. <laughs> in terms of believability and credibility, and just why on earth is he bothering to do that? Yeah. Well, what was really nice because uh, each of these stories has got the on the sofa feature, um, which is sort of goggle box with. Doctor Who cast watching the stories, um, yeah, and you've got the, the the cast who are in this story, and they're sort of discussing it and thinking, well, nobody's ever going to fall for that, and they're going to know it's Anthony Ainley immediately, and then you've got Sophie Aldred and Mark Stritson watching it, and they're trying to figure out who it is, and and obviously they knew Anthony Ainley in real life as well, yes. um, and yeah. don't spot it until the very last minute. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, those behind the sofa things are, uh, are, are a nice spin, basically. And there's just a, just a way of getting. And I think it's particularly cap- it's capturing like the uh, convention anecdotes uh, for the, that you, you that you get if you get if you're lucky enough to go and see people in, in the flesh. But getting them all uh, recorded like that, I think it's a really nice little touch. I can't imagine I'll go back and watch them often, but um, but watching yeah, it's just a, a nice way to see the start the. Uh, I said the staff. Nice way to see the actors yeah. <laughs> uh, remembering the, remembering what remembering what was just for them a few days at work. But um, uh, although I noticed Sarah Sutton was quite um, in, in her very quiet and mild mannered way, was quite scathing of Castrovalva, where she says she'd much rather watch it at double speed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah into, that would get into trouble if she was in the time team. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was funny that because uh, she probably doesn't have any knowledge of that sort of mini controversy. Um, <laughs> uh, about Crystal D saying that in the time team, but uh, <laughs> obviously thinking along the same lines. Yeah, I, I, just, I just thought it was funny when that all came up with people saying, is there this dividing line between old young fans and old fans about whether uh, the old series is fast enough or not? And I was reading some of these the slightly unimpressed comments from some of the younger time team members, and all I could think was, this is exactly what my mum thinks of Doctor Who, and she's 80, so it's definitely not just a, a young versus old yeah. thing. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's, some things. It's just sometimes it's just on your wavelength, or maybe it isn't quite on your wavelength at other times. Mm. Uh, so what else we've got here is um, some uh, sort of improved special effects on some of the stories. Yeah. What did? Yeah, and what did you make of the Castrovalva one? I because I think they were newly done for this box, weren't they? They weren't on the DVD. Yeah, I thought it was really nicely done because it's it wasn't really over the top. I mean, the main thing is the. The view from the Doctor's window of, of Castrovalva, the uh, recursive occlusion, it's just sort of tidied up really nicely, isn't it? Yeah, they make it really just look like an Escher painting, uh, yeah. whereas 
with the limits that they had back in the day, all they could do was give you the vague impression of an Escher painting by having a few sort of mirrors on it, but by, by, by making it um, just, just a bit more and more intricate, isn't it? Yeah. Um, it's, a, it, it's a lovely enhancement without, um, without but, it, but it's unobtrusive, that's the word I'm looking for. It doesn't look like something from the 1990s has suddenly leapt up onto your screen. It still feels like a 1981 thing, but just done really more sharply than they could at the time. Definitely, yeah. I think that these are the the more successful ones. Um, I think the the snake at the end of Kinder. I, I wasn't sure whether that was from the original DVD release or whether it's for this. But excuse me. Yeah, I think it is. Yeah, I think Kinder and Earthshock. I think both got the DVD um, right. special uh, uh, enhanced CGI effects, uh, which which were both were both sort of good for that for when they were done, but now seem to me to be quite dated. See, I, the it, thing about the snake is I thought it, it looked like it could have been of the time, but better, if that makes sense. It didn't look, like you say, like, yeah, a, like a really kind of um, digitally 90s thing. It just looked like yeah. the best effect they could have achieved at that time somehow. And it's still, there's still just that fundamental problem with Kinder of, of is the can the snake see over the mirrors? In which case, <laughs> that beats the entire point of trapping it surrounded by mirrors, um, which is a shame because that Kinder is just flawless story other than that. But we're jumping ahead. Yes, yes, we've got we've got four to doomsday <laughs> first. We've done. We've leapfrogged four to doomsday. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, that was spontaneous. That one. <laughs> I, I liked with this, with, with Fort Doomsday and the stuff about it, um, the bit of a revelation that um, all these years they've been saying, um, oh yes, we decided to shoot Fort Doomsday first so that Peter could uh, settle into the role of the Doctor and get to experience it all. And just in the last year or so, it sort of come to light through other interviews that people have said, yeah, no, we were just saying that. We, we didn't yeah. make Astrovalva first because we hadn't written it yet and we were in a panic because <laughs> the uh, Project Zeta Sigma, was it? What, the, original, uh, the, the original story got launch story got got abandoned and uh, and they just had to crack on and start filming something so they started filming Fort Doomsday because it, it was uh, it was ready it's it's where I haven't watched this since the DVD came out so it's been 10 years um and I enjoyed it way more this time and it, it seems on Twitter like it's having a bit of a renaissance as well that um people are finding a new appreciation of it somehow. yeah I mean uh, yeah, so that's the thing with me. So you can always find someone who's got something nice to say about something. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I've, I wasn't blown away watching it. And I think I can remember uh, thinking when I first saw it as well that um, kind of the end of episode one is, they're robots. And then the end of episode two is, yes, they're robots. And they're <laughs> going to kill you. And um, it was a bit, I found that a, a bit repetitive. But, it's, but it is that, it's got a really nice heart and feel to it. Definitely, yeah. it, it could easily be, be a, a season one story, basically, couldn't it? There's nothing in it. And actually, I could just imagine Hartnell um, chucking a load of acid on a frog at the end to kill it. Yeah. <laughs> so I think, the uh, climax. Yeah, I think trying to educate children about different cultures as well feels like um, the early days, doesn't it? With the so it's like the Aztecs and Marco Polo and that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, and people well, people can look at it now and say, "Oh, that that's really clumsy," or they're not doing it, but sophisticated. That's not they're not doing it sophisticated enough. Mm. But, but I mean, yeah, it was yeah. When you when you're a kid watching TV, it's, a, it's this is probably the first time you, you're going to have actually seen you know, Aboriginal dancing or um, uh, people wandering around being you know, the idea of these 
Greek people getting involved with high-tech computers and things, mm. uh, ancient Greek, obviously, um, uh, was, um, yeah, it was sort of eye-opening for you, for you. It just, just a little bit of horizons broadening, even despite the, the amazing coincidence of, uh, of Tegan happening to be fluent in a 40,000-year-old language that just yeah. happened to be spoken by the particular, um, <laughs> the particular original Australians who, who happened to live near Brisbane. Yeah. Um, but, this, this, these coincidences can happen in life. It's and it's Castrovalva, isn't it? Where Tegan's got that brilliant line about yeah, because it's when they're talking about the zero room about something that's totally cut off from the rest of the universe, and she says something like, oh, "I could have done to Brisbane." Yes, I thought that was uh, that was a nice line. I um I lived in Brisbane for a few weeks, and uh, yeah, there's yeah. Not, not much going on there. <laughs> Okay, a few weeks. <laughs> yeah, well, I was backpacking around Australia and I sort of stopped in Brisbane and we got a fight with some friends and we were looking for work. Couldn't really find anything. Um, but, um, did, got, did you thousand-year-old languages while you were there? I, I didn't know. It would have been a, a, probably a good use of my time. But <laughs> yeah, um, come, come it, in, I know when that's going to come in handy. It's weird they've got an artificial beach in Brisbane. Why? Because um, I think it's because all the other cities, I, might, I think I'm right in saying, have beaches. Apart from yeah. Brisbane, so they've built an artificial one along the river. I mean, I assume it's still there. I don't. That, I didn't get the impression it was a, a temporary one. Yeah, I think they did that in Birmingham once, but um, it all went wrong. Yeah, <laughs> I don't quite remember the ins and outs of it. Oh no, no, I'm remembering an ice skating rink that, that melted, and that was when I lived in Stoke, not Birmingham. I'm, I'm disparaging the wrong city. Yeah, I spent a lot of money setting up a Christmas ice skating rink, and then it just melted. So you oh, no. people were just like on slush puppy. <laughs> Um, but we're getting diverted. Uh, yeah, so I think uh, one of the things that uh, struck me about Four to Doomsday this time was um, kind of a route that, the, that maybe the, the Fifth Doctor could have taken. Like he's very quippy and, and uh, it's like almost like Roger Moore type um, kind of quips at things, isn't it? With the with the Monopticons, he's saying like, uh, yeah. Uh, "Yeah, you're having a ball or something like that," and and. When he meets Burt Cox's character, he says something else. And it's hard to re- remember um, what it, or to imagine what it must have been like to people who have had all those years of the Doctor as this super confident, headstrong guy. You know, guy uh, Tom Baker and, and, uh, and John Pertwee were very. You could say were sort of variations on one particular template of Doctor. They're, they're not completely different mm-hmm. in their dominance of any situation that they're in and, and Peter Davison coming along, I can now imagine must've been a real shock to, to fans of who, who'd been watching it for five, 10 years and had just not seen the doctor being anything other than really dominating and, uh, and just you know, powering through. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's, yeah, that, that, that thing of switching to having a, a bigger set of companions as well. Um, it re- it has, Echoes with the, the present day, doesn't it? Yeah, that's just what you were saying there. Yeah, that that did totally make me think of Geordie Whittaker. Um, yeah, after the uh, after the previous four Doctors, um, and and you've got that kind of big contrast. You know, in series ten, you've got Peter Capaldi punching um, Lord Sutcliffe, was he called? Uh, the, the, because because uh, he's racist towards Bill. Um, but then you know the the Thirteenth Doctor finding herself in uh, Montgomery is, is much more passive and unable to, uh, uh, you know, to, to kind of call anything out. I guess. Yeah, it's, it's playing a really different role in the proceedings. Mm. Yeah, definitely. It's, 
Yeah, and uh, you uh, saw a tweet. I think it was last night you sent out was uh, the um, the sort of the 1982 version of hashtag Not My Doctor. Yeah, she's on the. That's great. That that's on the um, on the bonus disc of this. Uh, this disc eight. I believe it's eight discs. But yeah, um, there's um, there's an episode of Take Two, uh, mm. BBC Two uh, version of sort of points of view for kids and where they actually get to, to be interviewed. And yeah, there's a full full range of responses from the from the kids they interview um, about how this new Doctor Who is taking on. But yeah, there's one girl in particular who just says, "No, I'm sorry. This this I cannot take this new Doctor Who seriously. He, he's not like Doctor Who should be at all." Um, and then she goes, and she says, yeah, she'll, she'll always think of him as a vet, yeah. um, which was a because <laughs> yeah, Peter Davison was one of the few. Uh, I think Pete Davison and Pertwee were the two who really were famous, uh, big, big names when when they took the role on. Well, no, Hartman Tratton probably was too in, in their own ways too, of course. But someone who was who, who who was absolutely a household name and was famously on TV every week anyway, then becoming Doctor Who. It's just so so different to, to someone like Tom Baker who can just come out of nowhere, seemingly come out of nowhere, yeah. and uh, and rupt onto the screens and take it all all on of his own. But yeah, this girl saying that she's not her doctor. Sorry, that Davison was not her doctor. Pretty much, she didn't use those exact words. But it, it makes you re- remember realize that you, you'll see people on uh, on Twitter or wherever now who just do not like this new style of Doctor Who, and it's like it's just. Just so what? There's always been yeah. people who don't like this new style of Doctor Who. I wasn't crazy about the Tenth Doctor, um, but um, yeah, I warmed to him uh, a bit eventually. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's that's the whole point. It changes. You might not like it sometimes. Absolutely, yeah. It's it's with all the Ferrari this time. It is. It's uh, it's easy to forget that this happens every time. There's a new Doctor. Basically, there's yeah. people that uh, yeah, people that won't like it. Uh, and you can't argue into liking it. I don't know why no. people try. Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> that is the trouble with Twitter, isn't it? Is uh, people try and persuade you why your opinion's wrong? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, because so, there's a few sort of um, different sort of tones for the Doctor. Obviously, as Peter Davison's finding his feet. You know, in, in the Visitation, he's uh, he, he's much more snappy with his companions and uh, kind of impatient with them. Uh, especially compared to Fort to Doomsday, it feels more like he's He's a bit more sort of eager to uh, indulge them and, and you know try and get them excited about what's going on, particularly at the beginning of the episode. Yeah, he's very much in teacher on a school field trip mode, which Jodie also is a lot, in, of course, in, in the new series. Yeah, um, that that kind of uh, feeling. And Adric's characterization in Four to Doomsday is quite strange, uh, and, and and I just mean in the script, it, it, it he's so sexist and so complaining about the girls all the time, and I can yeah. see. <laughs> Yes, it's like well, that is kind of what a boy would complain about his two sisters in that kind of way. But it's it's a strange sort of leap backwards for him, having been you know fine with with the Doctor and Romana previously. Mm. It's like they sort of sort of needed were trying to find a new niche for him, and that involved making him into a bit of a dickhead in some <laughs> respects. Uh, but um, yeah, but then he gets his little spacesuit moment, which. Yeah. Uh, he, I, that convinced me that I wanted to be Adric. I've got to admit. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I had a shock ahead for me. But, um, but, when we, but when we played Doctor Who at school, like I used to, I used to want to be Adric. Right. I had the same hairstyle. I uh, didn't have the project. But <laughs> yeah, you could. What was it? The uh, the Doctor Who pattern book that uh, that had the um, how to make yeah. the pajamas, didn't it? 
It did, yeah, and, and paper plates for your uh, for your roundels on your walls. I've never never actually made anything from the Doctor Who pattern, but but I did ironically buy a copy. But I swear it was ironic. Honestly. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I remember buying that and the and the cookbook and never doing anything out of either of them. Just it's just. <laughs> I think I once made Kipper of Tracken, <laughs> but it, it's just make some kippers. So it's like not, it's really not there's nothing particularly Trakenite about it. You don't have to leave them serenely in a garden for ten years before eating them. You, you can just eat them. Normally. I'd forgotten about all the pun names actually. <laughs> yeah, that, that's basically what it was worth. That's that's worth the enterprise just for that pun. That's yeah, because yeah, the weird thing about Adric is is how quickly he's won over by Monarch's dastardly scheme that it's a good idea. Yeah, and and it's like there's the double bluff of oh he's just you you kind of think oh he's just pretending to go along with it, and then yeah. you realise oh no he has actually decided to betray <laughs> everyone for no particular reason <laughs> just because Monarch's got a cool spaceship. The the, the sets on uh, Fort to Doomsday are I think some of the best spaceship sets. That's something that I'll definitely say. Although it doesn't blow me away as a story, um, mm. the, the, they've got these huge intricate walls and everything, and, and the Doctor Who tries to do that lots of times uh, and, and they make it look really good on this one and there's some really good lighting as well um, a lot of times in this season but particularly on Fort to Doomsday there's you know little pools of light in the distance that someone walks in and out of yeah. and, and things like that with which the, the scrubbing up that it's had for high definition uh, is um, really highlights because of course this is one it's entirely apart from a few effects shots of the spaceship this one's entirely studio bound so they mm. didn't have any f- film footage that they could put on in true HD but the uh, the remastering that they've done on, on just on the videotape uh, really really shows it in its best possible light. It, it's quite pristine. Yeah, yeah, it looks great. Um, yeah, cause they, they talk about that on um, well, they're making of ones, don't they? That I didn't really quite, quite understand it to be honest, but they they used the studio walls as part of the set to make it look bigger. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually the the, the TV studio that, mm. that you're seeing and the gantries and everything. Yeah, because you don't get that many sets that are sort of too level like that that often, I guess, as well. Yeah, they did a good job of making that spaceship seem absolutely huge, um, just by filming it in an absolutely huge room, basically. Yeah. yeah. Do you think it's talk about Adric? This is the first time I've watched season 19 since I've read Blue Box Boy, uh, Matthew Warthouse's autobiography. Have you read this? I have. It's on um, it's on Audible, and I've got an Audible subscription, and so you get um, Matthew himself reading it to you, uh, ah, which uh, has a few drives on my commute. Yeah, and it's very, yeah. it's a really well written book, isn't it? Um, I, I should, I was be tempted to try some of it. He's written some fiction, I think, as well, hasn't he? Yeah. Um, I haven't picked anything else up yet. I, I got the book fairly recently um, to get it signed at the, the big finish day uh, last year. Oh. Um, so I just just kind of read it back end of last year. One of the things that oh. stuck in my head was that he. He says in the book that Monarch's face is made out of hundreds of condoms. <laughs> I'd forgotten that. Which, <laughs> but that's not mentioned anywhere on the making of or, or anywhere yeah. else. That Like the, the complete history, don't talk about that. And it, that's a bit of creative license on his part. <laughs> <laughs> it makes me wonder if it's some, somebody told him it was a joke or something like that at the time. Yeah, yeah, like that's entirely possible, isn't it? <laughs> it's, it's hard to see why they would do that. They would just... Sure, they're quite used to making alien masks out of yeah. whatever they make it out of. Can't yeah, imagine unless he's, maybe he's maybe the boy's too innocent and, and doesn't know what condoms actually are. And he's just bluffing. They're <laughs> <Yeah>. a <laughs> possible explanation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, quite possibly. 
<laughs> so moving swiftly on, uh, Kinder, uh, which I think is well, uh, my favourite one on the set. I think it's was a brilliant story. What a surprise, uh, if you'll pardon the atrocious pun that I've written down. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it, yeah, and going from Fall to Doomsday, which, is, which could have been a Doctor Who story from 1964 quite comfortably, mm. um, to, uh, and, and that's not a criticism of it, but, um, into something that is just not like anything that Doctor Who's ever tried to do before is, is such a fantastically... Doctor Who-ish thing to do, and um, and so and that is one of the, the hallmarks of this season. You know, someone much cleverer than me said came up with the phrase that the TARDIS is a, a machine for travelling between genres, and, and you never see that more clearly than in than in season nineteen. I don't think um, you, you're going from Castrovaldo, which is basically maths and corridors uh, in in space, uh, then Fall to Doomsday, a straightforward sort of science fiction concept with an invasion on the cards. And then suddenly we're in this this world where it's all about the nature of individuality and, and spiritualism. It's uh, it's incredible that we could take that journey so quickly. Yeah, just a threat like no other in in, in Doctor Who, isn't it? The uh, the dark places, the inside, that kind of yeah, um, sort of threat, yeah. And um, I mean, I, I think um, one of my this has got one of my favourite. Um, documentaries on it and it's one that that's from the dvd range because what we should mention that what they've done with these is they've put all the dvd bonus features on i think all of them yeah and, and added ones particularly for the, for the stories that didn't have their own uh, documentaries at the time they all get them here and, and they're all really good but one thing that's particularly interesting on the kinder one is this uh, is the documentary on the writing of it and you get to see christopher bailey and eric saywood both sort of talking about how frustrating they found it working with each other yeah um but you can totally see how that weaves together and you get a doctor who story that's weird and yet really works because of the work the hard work that they were both doing like bailey wanted to wanted it to leave unanswered questions and to just hint at things and eric was there saying yes but why have the clocks all stopped and yes but why can't <laughs> why is the doctor not affected uh, we've got to at least put something in and bailey didn't like that because it was it, understandably, it, 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 he didn't want those things to be nailed down, but I think they hit they hit just the right balance for making a, a four episode adventure serial out yeah. of really um, sophisticated concept. Definitely, and and the dream sequence is is just one of the the weirdest, creepiest, I think most brilliant <laughs> things. Um, and Janet Fielding is excellent. And yeah, and she really undervalues her performance in it. I can't remember if it's on the um, commentary track or on the behind the sofa thing, but she's there saying, oh, I didn't get this right at all. I overdid it. Or, uh, oh, no, that's what she's, no, she says, you can see the wheels turning. That's the phrase she used. Yeah. Uh, so she thinks that her acting is too evident, but I don't, I think she's wrong because I, th- I think it, um, uh, it, it does show that Tegan is, you know, sort of out of herself a bit. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, I think I think it's it's one of the best companion performances of, of the lot. Yeah, and and just wait the way she's pushed to to agree to what the Mara wants. It's just the sort of thing you don't often see with a companion. They're they're normally sort of very straightforwardly possessed or hypnotized or duplicated or whatever it's going to be. Yeah, yeah, and again, and it's a story in which this story is not all about the Doctor. Nobody here knows who the Doctor is. The fact that he's a Time Lord doesn't doesn't really matter um he's not um he doesn't announce a big well he sort of well, at the end yeah he, he comes up with the, the mcguffin solution at the end for, for vanquishing the mara but he's not 
um, he's not being a superhero all the way through it. Yeah. And I can, I can imagine some viewers at the time, just as with the most recent season, finding that a bit dis, a bit jarring because that's not what people are used to. But it was originally written somewhere in there. It's mentioned that it was originally written for Tom Baker. Um, it wasn't something that, that, that they um, thought, like, oh, now that we've got this less domineering, dominating Doctor, well, let's do something a bit more um, where, where the Doctor's you know, not, not quite so in control. Mm. Like, it, and it, it does send that little fan what-if thing going in my head of, of what would, how would this have felt if Tom had just stayed for one more year? Yeah. It would have been interesting having a, a, a visibly aging doctor uh, in, in this situation. But, but hey, Peter Davidson is fantastic in it, so uh, there's, there's nothing nothing lost there. Yeah. Uh, and uh, we've got to mention Neris Hughes, not not the last time I'll be singing the praises of a, of a guest star, but um, <laughs> <laughs> in, in a story with so many characters, if I've all, but all of them deserve it. All, every single mm-hmm. character in this is it just really well portrayed and, and well, um, well, maybe rounded is the wrong word because some of them aren't rounded. They're completely uh, off, off, off the edge uh, in the case of, I'm forgetting his name now, H- what's his face? Uh, Hindle. Can't mend people, yes, thank you. Yeah, Simon Rowles, is that the actor's name? Thank you. Yes. But yeah. Or, um, yeah. Because it was interesting in the uh, the behind the sofa that Sarah Sutton revealed she went on a date with him on the after the recording of this story. I suppose she had a nice nap, so she had plenty of energy for going yeah. out. <laughs> <laughs> Limited opportunity to meet him. Um, but again, in Blue Box Boy, Matthew Warthouse sort of um, intimates that he wasn't much different in real life to his character. <laughs> so uh, it's kind of yeah. <laughs> oh, and we get the um, the, the time honoured convention story about Matthew Waterhouse having given uh, acting tips to old what's his name because of that <laughs> the, uh, of the stage and screen. But to be fair, and I, th- I think it might be in Blue Box Boy as well that he says he has no memory of that, and he, he makes a comment like. Um, Peter Davison does love to tell a tale and he knows how to tell a hilariously witty tale and he doesn't always let himself be too restrained by what actually happened. Yeah. He did. Which is quite a nice way of putting it. In the book, I think he says it was a joke just uh, sort of between takes. Um, but yeah. uh, Peter Davison told the story and I, many times. Yeah, and, and he, he probably hadn't ever worked on a, on a cheap BBC production line um, drama before he was used to filming Hollywood movies, and yeah. Uh, so uh, yeah, maybe he would. Uh, maybe he did need a few tips. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm generous. <laughs> there, don't, I don't know that really. But, um, um, but yeah, the thing the thing that occurred to me at this time is is how much the Doctor's kind of out of the action to begin with. He's he's in the the dome um, and not really got any clue that there's that much weird going on, other than the two. Um, uh, whatever you call them, explorers or whatever, are kind of going a bit crazy. Yeah, it's a while before he gets until they they open the the box. The sense that there is anything actually bigger going on. Um, yeah, and what the um, and it's kind of timeless. You know, they don't even. I think one of them just mentions talks about the home planet and doesn't even mention where these people are from. So you don't know necessarily that they're even descended from Earth humans. Yeah, it's really in a bubble it's a bit theatrical in that respect and i really like that and i've got no problem at all with the um the forest set it. some people aren't impressed because you can sort of tell they're just a load of pot plants but i mean mm. it, 
uh, and the forest floor. Oh, some people go on about the forest floor as not being, um, as being obviously just the floor of a TV studio. Mm. But um, that just doesn't, it doesn't jar for, for me at all. It is just, it's just where they're telling us the story. Yeah, yeah, stuff like that doesn't doesn't really bother me. The, there was the limitations of the time, weren't they? That's the that's the thing. Just something you said before made me think as well. You kind of alluding to to series eleven, or you know, kind of comparing this to series eleven. You imagine if there was a Geordie Whittaker episode where all the men were mute, um, and women had all the intelligence and the power and stuff. <laughs> It would prove to certain people <laughs> that political correctness had finally gone mad. Although I think to most of them, they decided political correctness had gone mad in 1982 yeah. or, or 1962. <laughs> and uh, yeah, no, you're right. This would cause such a Twitter storm. And the only the only character in the uh, in the dome who's not mad is um, is, is Nerys Hughes as the woman, and the others are all complete loonies. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. It's um. You can see why, that, I mean, and it's one of the rarest of things for a Doctor Who story to get a sequel. Um, mm. And, and uh, Snake Dance is better than Monster Peladon, I think, by anyone's uh, reckoning. But um, <laughs> that's another review. But um, but you can see how it had the potential. And the Mara is just such a fascinating concept. Those, yeah, and those the scenes with uh, with Tegan in the Mara's realm with old um, uh, Lou Beale and the, uh, yeah. uh, uh, and the other um, aspects of the Mara. Do you take them? as being, because I know people say, you know, that they reflect TARDIS crew and that that is what, what we were meant to think. Um, that, but this Tegan seeing the TARDIS crew sort of reflected in a dark way. But I also quite like the idea that they are actually individual Maras that all want to get out, but it's only the one that talks to her and charms her, well, not charms her, blackmails her, that, um, that successfully escapes from, from that realm into ours. But but that's one of those questions that it doesn't give you an answer to. So mm. it's it's nice to uh, to be able to just ponder on it. You know, I didn't pick up on that at all, to be honest. The the Tardis crew element of it, but of course they're playing chess, aren't they? Which is what Adric and Nissa are doing. Yes, and it's not, that's, someone says that on one of the bonus features. I'll admit that's not me having my um, yeah. having a moment of inspiration. Uh, I, I, um, yeah, I, I think Christopher Bailey said says in one of the interviews that that's where he was coming from, um, right. but. Um, it sort of got a bit watered down yeah i haven't watched all the features i've watched all the new features um because they're just it's so packed with stuff on here isn't it i've um oh, I've, God, yeah. Yeah. i haven't uh, revisited all of the ones that were on the dvds yet so yeah it's been a wee while since i watched that one yeah there's so much stuff to come back to yeah yeah it is very good value for money i'm gonna say so yeah and uh, now nissa going for a nice lie down uh for the duration of this story i don't think anyone would argue that they should have done another rewrite that had Nissa following the Doctor around saying, what's that Doctor, all the way through it without actually having anything to do. And, and I think Adric and Tegan both do get things to do. Although, you know, Tegan's well, asleep, but, she, mm. but, but that her dream is, is the core of the entire story. So I, I, don't, I think watching Star Trek when you're a kid as well, you, know, there are, you get to know there are some weeks when Chekhov isn't there and there are some weeks when Scotty goes on the away party and some weeks when he doesn't. So Nissa just going off to have a quiet nap in her room didn't bother me at all no. um, I don't see it as a flaw in the, in the, in the uh, four, three companion structure I just see it as a yeah there's, just, there's no need this week it's not really a problem it would have been nicer though if they had tied it in and actually given some explanation for why she was uh, did she need she needed her delta waves augmenting didn't she yeah yeah that maybe, maybe it was that delta waves augmenting from time to time <laughs> Yeah, that maybe it was something that had happened because uh, she's nearly uh, nearly converted in 
thought of Doomsday, isn't she? Maybe. If, uh... well, of course, yes, yes, yes. She gets, yes, yes, rather than that. But, but they don't quite, they don't actually tie it in. Uh, uh, no. But I guess they want to keep moving. But um, yeah. It, it's better than, because in, in the visitation and Earthshock, she just spends a lot of time in the TARDIS, doesn't she? So it is. It's it's more deftly handled. I think that she's just out of the action for a specific reason. Yeah, at least they are. They are actually making a point of it and doing something about it. And and we're going to get double Nissa later on in a, in a couple of stories' time. Yeah. So it's um it's not like there's any Nissa shortage this uh, this season. No, no, that's it. Um, yeah. So and and just yeah, there is uh, the other thing about this season is is the amount that they the stories fall into each other, don't they? There's a, always a little reference at the beginning of each story to the previous one. Yeah, I'm sure that comes from it being on twice a week. It's a little bit more soapy, that's that's the point. Yeah. So, um, uh, that there's, and, and, and I guess it's just harking back to the early days when you know, people didn't, the stories weren't even billed as individual stories, really. Mm. It was just um, a constantly rolling tale that moved from setting to setting. So, um yeah, I, but, but, but that makes it nice. And I, given a choice, any, I would take that any day over references to stories that they've had that we haven't seen, because those always sound more interesting than mm. what we've actually seen. When you know, like when someone say, "Oh yes," and we had that battle with those seven dragons, yeah. uh, didn't we? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I always feel shortchanged by them because it's like, let me, I want to see it. And that sounded much more fun than what I've just seen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because we had a little bit of that in series eleven, didn't we? Um, they, they would refer to uh, to things between stories, but it's quite nice. Yeah. I think that other than adventures, that it's nice that they visited places and just had a nice time. That's true. So actually, yeah. it tells us that we're just we're seeing the exciting ones yeah. where drama happens, but it doesn't always. Yeah, you can just travel sometimes without fatalities. Yeah. <laughs> um, so then we go into the visitation. Yeah. Um, when monsters in in the past, it's been a while since Doctor Who actually did that, hasn't it? Um, yeah, the the time the, the Mask of Dracula. Oh, Mask of Dracula. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, it's been. It's, oh, am I forgetting something obvious? But anyway, it's been a good few. Years. I'm pretty Tom's sure it's been a few years since we were on on the actual past of Earth rather than on a planet a bit like Earth in the past, which we yeah. had a fair amount. Um. And it does, yeah, you know, it adds that thing because you know that this alien is not going to succeed in conquering the world. So the drama has to sort of have other other pulls on it and just what's the cost of defeating them going to be? Mm. The sonic screwdriver. The sonic screwdriver, which, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, the the what? I don't care. (laughs) uh, Well, (laughs) I was seven and I I think you used it in Fort of Doomsday. I don't think you used it in Kindred. Maybe it was used in Castrovalva a bit, but yeah, I, I I didn't have any opinion about that that going at the time, and, mm-hmm. and thought it was a bit strange that other people were so nostalgic about it. I remember because I just thought, so what? He's got he's got a whole tool toolkit. Yes, as we know from the the Doctor Who technical manual, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the, the clamps and things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think this story. I don't know. It kind of. Um... It's, it's never as good as I remember it is. I always remember quite yeah. liking it, and then I watch it and I think nothing's happening for ages. And yeah, Mr. Magic aren't very well served by it. No, and a, a while back, I, about a year or so back, I started. You know, a lot of Doctor episodes are up on um, uh, Daily Motion, 
Yeah. Um, you have to kind of search for them because they've hidden, they put them under fake titles or whatever to make it a bit hard to find. But I watched it um, and, and it got to, when I, was, when I was watching episode three, this is in time because the DVD was upstairs and I couldn't be bothered going all the way upstairs. <laughs> so I just fired up Daily Motion on the TV downstairs. Uh, and, um, and it got to the end of episode three and it ended. And then I realized that someone had got the name wrong and they, I think they missed the actual episode three and it had jumped straight from episode two to episode four and I hadn't noticed while watching it. <laughs> <laughs> Admittedly, there may have been a glass or two of grape juice involved. But um, yeah, it, but, but it's the Richard Mace show, isn't it? And he yeah. is just so, um, I think, brilliant. I, I just think he's another really charismatic guest star who does steal the show and, and I didn't know him from on the buses at all I'd never seen that so to me he's just Richard Mace uh, I didn't know that he was a guy from a sitcom doing a, a sort of riff on what he did on a sitcom yeah but, but no, I mean, doing a, sorry what do you call it a playing against type mm. yeah I weirdly used to love on the buses when I was little um I'd probably find it rubbish if I watched it now <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh yeah I think he's great I think you need these these big larger-than-life guest stars. I think that's... Um, Alan Cumming in, in Series 11 was uh, was a real high point as well. I think they needed yeah. a bit more of that. Absolutely, and it, because it, that that is a unique thing to Doctor Who, that you can go to such different places and see such different types of characters. Um, it's it's a real strength that, um, that, that the show should, should play to because mm. it gives an opportunity to get these really uh, interesting performances. Definitely. The... Um, the bit, I mean, I've always really enjoyed it is when the, the, the two Terraleptors hide behind the door while the doctor and, and his friends come in and then they completely mess up the ambush um, because the one with the gun is, is not the ones who are trying to ambush them. Um, and watching the, the uh, behind the sofa bit um, of them just, uh, the way they just laugh their heads off at this bit, I thought was uh, was brilliant because it's a bit that I've always found the little flappy hands of the pterodactyls. Bless yeah. them, <laughs> they're not as evolved for the conquest naturally. But then, but but you've got the nice thing of of these. Um, was a nice, the, the interesting thing of this not just being a race of evil monsters, but these are actually some criminals from yeah. a race who aren't evil. Um, and that's they, we'll come back to that with the Slovene in a many, many years in the future. Yeah. But I think that's the first time that Doctor Who's ever done that and, and, and just had, had these, I suppose we've had like evil geniuses who, uh, but um, before who are uh, being uh, being exiled and whatnot, like like your uh, Morbiuses. But mm. but yeah, to have some monsters, but actually no, it's not that these monsters are naturally evil. These, these are just some criminals. Uh, it makes it, it gives it a nice sort of reality to it yeah it's good to have nuance like that that one entire race isn't a particular way and hell-bent on domination or whatever yeah um, and and design um but throughout the season the design just keeps knocking it out of the park mm. uh well no throughout the first six sevenths of this season the design knocks it out of the park <laughs> <laughs> but um and the visitation is just a really good example of that the robot that is pretends to be the grim reaper and then mm. it's actually a a funky new romantic art deco <laughs> robot um uh is is just a, re- a really lovely touch and it's really 80s and it's really yeah. um just just unnecessarily stylish yeah. but, but that makes it that is what and like i said I mean, this isn't a story that 
ultimately has a really gripping plot, um, uh, and the, and the defeat is sort of quite. It was all very neatly tied up, but it's not a, it's not an abs- it's not a thrill ride of a story. Yeah. But it, it but it but as it goes along, it always looks nice, and it always and, and it does the thing of balancing the past and futurism at the same time. I like. Um, having a story set in the past that doesn't go immediately off to it stays radiophonic the soundtrack um, stays all synthesizery I mean it touches on it's got little motifs that, that make you think of olden times but it's it's still very much um, a 1980s science fiction series that happens to be visiting the past they don't turn off the synthesizers and, and get out loots only um, it, um, it's still Doctor Who doing the past uh, and I like that yeah that's, that's a good point yeah, as you say, it looks stunning as well. It does. It does look really, really good. When they land in London at the end, it's such a nice shot when they when the Doctor steps out the TARDIS. I think. Yeah, yeah, that, that's that's Elstree, isn't it? I think is that a, is that I a student? So, yeah. I think that was one, that bit's on film. Yeah. Uh, that, if I'm remembering again, it's a bit of a blur because there's so many bonus features to take in. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think they went. That was a bit where they went from the bigger studios mm. on film, so that they could uh, fit all that in. And the bonuses on this um, are, are a real plethora. There's the separate documentaries about the writing of it, the music of it, and the directing of it. Um, which, again, for a story that isn't, it's not not a story that crops up in at the top of the, of the league table, but it's a good middle placing story. Mm. And so it's it's nice that it's being covered in that, to that extent uh, that they've got enough stuff to do. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and the, I, I only, only this only occurred to me yesterday while while flicking through the bonus features. At the end, spoilers. Uh, it's a great fire of London, and the flames are going, and they all get off the cart, uh, and they, they they run out, and, and the uh, the pterodactyl's gun explodes and starts the fire, and um, and then the doctor says to Nissa, "Quick, throw all of those things onto the fire." And I think all of those things are, are live rats, and, and I think they <laughs> burn these rats alive. It's not quite. <laughs> they don't spell it out, yeah. but I'm sure that's what happens. I can't. Uh, <laughs> it's a burn the rats, every single one of them, um, <laughs> and then run off in the TARDIS. <laughs> that's the darkness of very Stewart. Which, again, nowadays you just lock them in a lock them in a basement and let them starve to death if they were spiders. But um, it's, it's the humane way. Yeah, <laughs> they need to get, these things do need to get wrapped up one way or another. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's it's a weird kind of middle ranking story, isn't it? It looks great, and I always remember enjoying it more than I do when I'm watching it. Um, But yeah, I think I I feel sorry for Nissa the amount of time she has to, Sarah, certainly the amount of time she's just in the TARDIS slowly building the device to shake the android to pieces, which then handily walks into the TARDIS. (laughs) Yes, and then Adric does a bit of walking backwards and forwards and getting captured. Yeah, yeah, they're not well served in it, are they? Yeah, and I mean, this is one of those ones that, that you can now you can look at it and easily say, well, it should have been a three-parter or even a two-parter. Mm. But um, but at the time they had a slot to fill, and it's a it's a good little story. Yeah. So yeah. we then do move on to the two-parter. Yeah, two-parters. Who ever thought that they'd come back? Uh, the, the idea that you could tell a Doctor Who story in just forty-five or fifty minutes is ridiculous. Yeah. Um, <laughs> because, uh, it, it was such an odd odd thing for them. To do, but obviously the the JNT must have just decided I'm not doing any more six parters after his experience with um Armaged- working on Armageddon Factor and Invasion of Time. I think he worked on both of them uh, as a assistant floor manager. Yeah. Like, yeah. Let's um yeah. And our first historical since the Highlanders, he says, consulted checks notes. Yes, yeah, famously the uh, the yeah, the first first pure historical. I think um 
Peter Davison makes the point on the the making of that it, it was probably a script that wasn't a Doctor Who script that just got sort of got dusted down. Uh, yeah, it could well be. It's uh, I, I, a few years ago. Um, I showed this to my wife when I think a series of Downton Abbey finished, um, and I said, "Well, don't worry, I've got a <laughs> Doctor Who story we can watch, which is just like Downton Abbey." Just like that. <laughs> Did you really like this? She didn't I would like. like to, oh no! I wish you. Oh, you should do an edit and, and edit the Downton Abbey theme music yeah. on and see if anyone even. Knows. <laughs> Uh, she, and she, how did it go down? She didn't like it. No, because it's always <laughs> saying, it, people have different reasons. Lately, this one has has really taken some kicked some a bruising attacks from various uh, from various angles. Yeah, because I can't remember who it was. It might have been somebody in the Doctor Who magazine saying uh, years ago. You know, this is the one that you can sort of show your mum or something like that without laughing at it and um, <laughs> you're not being too embarrassing. But um, yeah, it was just the. Uh, the abject cruelty of the Cranleys locking their son in the attic and then not really being bothered when he fell off the roof and died. Um, yes. That she couldn't get away with it. It was all just like these <laughs> and jolly... The doctor, yeah, and, and the doctor just um, saying, oh, well, <laughs> yeah. we'll probably for the best. And then they just immediately <laughs> cut to a really sort of uh, jolly goodbye, uh, exchanging gifts and stuff. Yeah. Sorry your son died, but he was hideous. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> pretty much how they wrap it up. Um, then, of course, all it needs is a thirty-second insert scene of, of Lady Cranley having a, standing on a cliff, having a moment of uh, introspection, and the Doctor shouting at her about how um, her morality is um, uh, is, a, is failing. And she then realizes what it was all about. Which is, if we got that now, everyone would be happy. Yeah, um, but yeah, is... it was. It, it is just a case of. Um, Right, we're off. We've got another another adventure to do next week. Yeah, because this is, is again. Um, I know we keep making all these kind of comparisons with series eleven, but the lack of the Doctor making uh, or taking a moral stance is one of the complaints that's often levelled at it. Um, mm. And in this one, you've got the Doctor finding a body in a cupboard and then agreeing not to say anything about it. Ruined <laughs> party. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, but then, you know, horror fang rock, the Doctor doesn't give a shit about all those people getting killed by the Brutus. <laughs> in fact, he finds them quite annoying. Yeah. Um, you know, these things can just be... But, but, but horror fang rock probably um, sweeps you along with it a bit more effectively than Black Orchid manages to. I think yeah. the cast didn't have fun making it at all. No. Which come, really comes over in the documentary. But, yeah. Which is strange because you watch it and you think they all got to wear fancy costumes, it was a bit of a change, but then they're interviewed and they're like talking about how it was absolutely freezing cold and it was the director's first ever uh, directing gig yeah. and he's nervous and, and a bit out of his depth and, and didn't keep everything moving as, as, as smoothly as a more experienced director would have done. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I, re- I remember being really surprised when this came out on, on DVD. And uh, listening to the commentary track, that, that, that they all pretty much hated it. Yeah, because um, you'd imagine but, there's no, um, there's not a lot of techno babble. There's no. not, you know, kind of uh, setting up for special effects shots and stuff like that, which I always imagine takes ages. Um, yeah, you would have thought it would have been a pleasant experience, but yeah, the sense yeah. how muddy the field was and how freezing cold it was and all the rest of it. Yeah, yeah, and, and although Peter Davison is, of course, proud of his cricket, yeah. actually being. <laughs> ball himself it's something I never mastered uh, mastered uh, I, now I do remember watching when I was a kid watching it and there's that line where, where they say the master yeah uh, I remember having a, um, a, a frisson and thinking oh it's the master and then and then they explain that they mean WG Grace and yeah. that 
fact has got me points in two pub quizzes so far in my <laughs> entire life. Uh, if there's ever a question about the history of cricket, just write down W.G. Grace and there's a pretty good chance that that's the correct answer. It's great when there's a quiz or something and you know something because of Doctor Who, but you just sound quite quite learned and well-read. <laughs> it doesn't happen often, but when it does, yeah. it's still a victory, if that's um, a word. Yeah, the, the, the new making of on Black Orchid, um, I think, is a real highlight of this set. It's, is that one of the ones with Mark Brixen? Yeah, it's just so nice when the, uh, the TARDIS materialises and it's the original prop and yes. they're at the, the house where it was all filmed and Janet Field and Sarah Sutton, Matty Warthouse uh, and Mark Strickson all walk oh, out. Who is a really good interviewer, isn't he? Uh, yeah, he's a, he's a really, he's, uh, yeah. He's great. I just think, oh, I wish all the making of were like this because I didn't stop smiling for the first 10 minutes. It's so nice. And they're all just kind of having a laugh and getting on together and then they take Peter Davison to the, back to the cricket pitch where they filmed the cricket match and there's, there's a guy there who was there last time um, and they, they make him get the gear on and uh, <laughs> put the uh, put the pads on and everything and uh, and, and get a few uh, get a few balls chucked at him. Uh, it's just so nice. I, mean, I guess they don't have the budget to do it for all of them, but um, compared just to the, the kind of the talking heads, um, I thought it was lovely. And then the guy that played uh, is it is it Michael Cochran? I should have written this down. Oh yeah, it's in Ghostlight as well. Yeah. Um, they, he's there and it's it's just really nice they're sitting there it's a sunny day and they're just uh, reminiscing uh, I think it was a really nice way of doing it yeah yeah, yeah the, all of those new documentaries are, are just uh, really, really lovely and yeah they go back to the original locations throughout and uh, yeah they're all they're all um, absolutely top notch yeah because the time flight one they all arrive together and, and uh, look at Concord um, but, then, but then they just go and do loads of talking heads and I thought ah, it would have been nice to just have them like the Black Orchid one just wandering around together yeah um, maybe they only had uh, half an hour's access to it yeah um, yeah it's in Manchester that I only realised at the end didn't oh, realise yeah. that was there <laughs> they should uh, have a convention on it yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah definitely a, a specific time flight um, convention <laughs> Um, but yeah, the uh, overall again, it, it's like the visitation. It looks really good, doesn't it? It does, and I think the um, the, the rest, something I'm, I made a note that I think the restoration on this one is is much better than the restoration on the DVD. Yeah. I think when the DVD black Hawk came out, they just discovered a new process for for, bring, for making colours more vivid and more back to life. Mm. And, and on our telly, at least the, uh, the, the the DVD of Black Hawk, it always looked a bit over the top. The grass is just really bright green, uh, greener than grass ever really is. Uh, and uh, and on um, on the Blu-ray here, it's all much it's much more nuanced and it's mm. it's really just really nice it's just yeah pristine again uh, and they've got all that lovely uh, location footage to, to do it on and the, and it's really nice nice that the the, um, yeah, the the mystification of uh, Adric and Nissa over Tegan knowing all about cricket and of course her being Australian it's a nice little character thing that works t- particularly well for her with them being a nation of cricketers so uh, yeah I, I like it more than anyone who is in it does yeah, yeah I, I do like the angle of it and with the train at the start as well um, again Adric and Nissa just think well what a kind of an inefficient silly way to travel <laughs> Um, but uh, yeah, the doctor said I, I always wanted to drive one as a, as a child. It's it's you get a little smile from Tegan in, in recognition of that sort of little boys want to be train drivers thing. 
Yeah, and it's and it's really nice um, distinction from uh, Sarah Sutton between her roles as Nissa and um, what's the name? Who isn't Nissa? Um, What's her name? Lady. (laughs) No. Anyway, um, her. Is it Anne? Yes, it is Anne. Yes, the Talbot, the Trakan Talbots. Yes, yeah. Um, yeah. Oh no, Isha. Yeah, that's another thing. I, yeah. I didn't know that Isha was like. In fact, I think I thought Isha was a made-up place for this, like how um, Mummerset is made up. Mm. Uh, but it turns out it is. Um, uh, yeah, you know, the, the, she makes Nissa particularly austere and sort of um, a little bit aloof in this, which is part of Nissa's character that, that's often there but not particularly foregrounded. But she foregrounds that so that when she's being Anne, being all, uh, being uh, flapper and, and charlestoning, um, uh, you, you get to see her being, yeah, just two, two distinct characters who even who have slightly different speech patterns as well. You know, she talks in a slightly different uh, tone of voice depending which one of them she's being. Uh, so yeah, it's just that, that, that aspect of it gets overlooked. She puts in a really good turn as two different people. Yeah, because on the documentary, she talks about how she's worried she hadn't done enough to differentiate them. But but yeah, I've always thought it's it's very good the way she uh, the way she plays the two. Yeah, yeah, she's uh, yeah, she's very good. And we've got the extended episode one on this set as well. Um, yeah, they've actually they've actually taken the bonus the the, uh, the the little extra bits and put them put them in place, which is quite. Yeah, always not. There's, there's. I mean, it doesn't really add much to the story, does it? You, you get the sort of little bits. Um, the police find in the TARDIS on the, on the platform. Mm. That bit. I, I, mean, I think I watched it, and I thought that bit's new, but I'm, I might be wrong now. Actually, it might have always been there. Uh, I think it is. Oh yeah, and there's just more of um, the Doctor creeping about. Yeah. When he, when he's lost in the house while the plot's going on elsewhere, which is another reason why Peter Davison isn't so crazy about it. Yeah. <laughs> so the Doctor gets captured while the plot happens to everyone else. Yeah. And Adric merrily feasts. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> care in the world because yeah, what's the worst that could happen? You know? The um, yeah, <laughs> the story on the uh, that they talk about where they they had the um, the, the buffet out and uh, which Adric had to stand by. <laughs> And that um, Matty Waterhouse would keep eating bits of it, and uh, uh, John Nathan Turner had to go over to him on the third day and say, "That's been there for three days, and we're not putting it away at night." You better stop eating. Like that. You know, when there's been a, when there's been a meeting at work that's had catering, um, and, uh, and the leftover sandwiches get put out in the office, there's a point up to about three in the afternoon where it's still reasonably safe to eat them. But yeah. once it gets past about four in the afternoon, you really don't want a prawn sandwich <laughs> after midday. So I kind of know where he's coming from there. Yeah. So he uh, he could have been <laughs> could have been incapacitated. <laughs> if food poisoning had finished him off, it would have made a real problem next week. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. So that's kind of his uh, his last little bit of fun, isn't it? And then yeah. into Earth Shock. Into Earth Shock, which, as um, as regular listeners of Trap One might know, <laughs> is um, is very much is, is my favourite story of all time. So getting it um, getting it. Seeing it get this treatment and all of the bonuses and everything uh, has uh, has absolutely made my day with the, with this box set. You see, you went to the the BFI to see the screen of this as well. Yes, really nice event. Um, and surprised how much they, extras went on. I thought we might just get a little introduction, but um, there's lots of interviews and they showed quite a few of the bonus features uh, as well. Um, it was um, and, and we got um, 
Matthew Wardhouse and Eric say were reunited for the first time since um, the uh, the latter killed the former. Ah, um, right. So it was, <laughs> and, and you know, no hard feeling. Glad to say between them. Excellent. Uh, yeah, and, and um, so <laughs> it got said a lot as well. Yeah. If um, if anyone hasn't heard it, there is a podcast that you recorded with Colin Neal uh, live at the event. Yes, indeed. Uh, yeah. I think probably everybody has heard it because it got more downloads than any of the uh, season uh, series eleven podcasts. Well, that's, uh, that's top quality for you. That had me on them, so <laughs> uh, yeah, I think it's the allure of the of the classic series and and excellent podcasting from you and Colin as well, obviously. We all knew that in advance, and that's why they downloaded it without knowing. Yeah, <laughs> but um, yeah, I love yeah, this I mean, one as well. It's. Um, it's just it's just great to have such an action-packed story. Uh, I love the 80s Cybermen. And there's so many of them as well. You watch it and you realize how many of the costumes they made. I think it makes yeah, a real that difference. Yeah, maybe in, maybe in one or two scenes, the shots in the invasion, actually, there might have been a few. But, but, mm. but yeah, I mean, there are... This isn't. It's completely believable that this is an army. And when you get that moment where someone says, "Hey, how many, how many silos have you got down there?" and she says, "Is it forty thousand? I can't remember, or four thousand? Um, and the music just just swells yeah. with the realization that there are thousands of Cybermen in those containers. Um, it, it, you don't for a minute think there aren't really that many Cybermen because mm-hmm. because they're just uh, their presence is it's so uh, so well constructed. Mm. And the music is great. It's really iconic, isn't it? All that kind of the chimes and the kind of militaristic uh, parts yeah. of it. Yeah, Absolutely, and, and so uh, so new, um, and and, it, and perfectly fitted for Cybermen. You know that it wouldn't be quite as good if it was an army of boards or whatever. And that that clanging music has to. It yeah. really is just so Cybermanish. Mm. Uh, it suits it perfectly, and this is one of the ones that's got a. Um, an isolated soundtrack on the uh, on the Blu-ray, which I've not actually uh, put on yet, but um, and, and I know it's been released on, on CD and things and, and uh, an LP over the years. But you can actually just just play through just the music, uh, and and it's one of one that just really merits. That. I think the the um, the radiophonics were, were just uh, absolutely knocked it out of the park yeah. with this one. Brilliant. Yeah, I've got that CD actually. I think it's got it's it's called Earthshot, but I think it's got a few other stories on it as well. Um. Yeah, because it was originally they came out on vinyl in the eighties. There was um, Doctor Who, the music was the one that came out uh, around the time of um, season, around the time of this season, and it had a, a scattering of tracks from throughout the show's history. And Earthshock represented the very latest, mm-hmm. and then the following year they did another one that was mostly Doctor Who music two, which was mostly music from just season twenty and twenty one. Uh, and, and those two over the years have come out in various different reformattings and, and compilations. And I think the one that's now called Earthshock on CD includes most of the Davis era, basically. Yeah. Is the other one the Five Doctors on CD, I think, maybe I've got? That's right, yeah. Oh, then there might be a bit of an overlap between the two. Yeah. But yeah, um, it, 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 there's a real peak this year in terms of the music being really distinctive for each individual story. Mm. Yeah, and yeah, and these Cybermen. My my first Cyberman story I saw is the other Stone Cold classic, Silver Nemesis. So oh, yeah, it's just <laughs> unimpeachably um, <laughs> and sophisticated. Uh, but that just shows Cybermen can do capers as well as yeah. I suppose <laughs> doing blockbusters. <laughs> but um, but yeah, the '80s Cybermen always my default kind of image. So when I was reading all the Target books and stuff like that. 
totally always how I pictured them and heard them. So yeah, once I started getting the videos and stuff, Tomb of the Cybermen and stuff came out, it came as a bit of a shock. <laughs> they were, yeah, they were a little bit different. Yeah. It was, um, yeah, no, because well, I had already decided I was a huge Cyberman fan before I'd ever seen a story with the Cybermen in it. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, I think I'd just read something about them in Doctor Who magazine, which probably, thinking about it retrospectively, probably been placed there to seed people's uh, interest. I mean, I'm just saying, go over the Cybermen, they've not been in it for such a long time, but they're really fondly remembered, which I think was a month or two before Earthshot came on, but didn't yeah. give you any specific clues that they were going to come back. Yeah. And, but because of that, I'd gone out and bought the book, um, the Cybermen did that adaptation of the Moonbase mm-hmm. and Tomb of the Cybermen and Revenge of the Cybermen. And yep, I was absolutely, uh, convinced that these were the best monsters ever and they really ought to come back soon. And so when they did, it was completely mind blowing. Just, and everything about those, and the silver jaw that you can see within the mask is yeah. really creepy because it reminds you, the, um, of, uh, of their former humanity, which, uh, which they often sort of think, sometimes forget to do when they do just make them into zombie robots. Yeah. Uh, it's good to, to emphasize that. And I love and, that they've got a bit of kind of, uh, I mean, they're not called illogical, are they, in this one? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, they use logic. Yeah. Logic is at the core of what they do. Yeah. That doesn't necessarily mean... Logic could be deployed in a, in a, in a somewhat flamboyant style <laughs> <laughs> while still being logic. Which I think, I think David Banks actually takes a few of his cues from the uh, from Christopher Robbie, the cyber controller, the Cyberman lead, or leader of the Cybermen in Revenge, mm. who, who similarly acts like he's the, the villain, not just yeah. the culture of a bunch <laughs> of zombies, uh, and. and yeah, it, it, it helps the storytelling no end. It, it makes it more exciting. Yeah. Got in, the, in the making of, you got the thing about John Nathan Turner made them sort of nod their heads as they talk so you could tell which one was talking. <laughs> yes, and, that, and one, the, the fantastic bit of the two of them, I think two of them are having a good natter as Tegan and the, um, yeah. <laughs> and the Chief Patrol creep up on, uh, creep up on them. Yeah, and um, they're, they're moving their hands around. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they were... <laughs> obviously having a heat debate about logic so much of um so much of 20th century science fiction would be so different if we had known how easy wireless communication was going to be in the very near future because messages still have to be sort of transmitted and received is a, is a big deal and uh, yeah. um you know the, the idea now that a race like the side men wouldn't all instantly know what the other ones are all thinking is, is kind of strange because because we would just assume that any kind of robot evil robot would would have uh, Wi-Fi connectivity to all of its colleagues. Yeah, that's but, something that always struck me. Years ago when I read the novelization of Remembrance of the Daleks, yeah. obviously when you when you watch the Daleks, they, they have to sort of slowly scream instructions at each other. Um, <laughs> but that book is the first one where you've got them as sort of networked... Um, cyborgs oh, it's brilliant um it's really really good so they they can communicate as they would obviously just um because they're cyborgs and they've got they've got kind of uh, connectivity like that um so yeah it makes total sense i remember thinking that is absolutely superb because uh, i remember uh, you, you read about ben aronovich having to cut loads of dialogue because he hadn't realized how slowly they talked and how long um, it took them <laughs> to get to to have a conversation and, and how great in that is as well to listen to i guess Mm, yeah, yeah, and um, the uh, 
the structure of, of Earthshock um, is something that I've just made a note to talk about because I really like, and, it, and in fact, it goes back to Castrovalva as well, that, that it breaks this idea that a Doctor Who four-parter has to be episode one, you arrive, he investigates, episode two, he finds out a bit more, episode three, someone gets captured. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, both, both Castrovalva and Earthshock don't do that, and they give you an episode one that could almost be a standalone prequel um, and and then move to an episode two that could in, in any other world be, a, be like a fresh episode one because you're moving to a new a new setting like in, in Castrovalva we go from well first of all we're, we're at the, at the, in in England and then we're in the TARDIS for an episode and then we've only got two episodes actually in Castrovalva and in Earthshock it's only sort of fifteen minutes or so into maybe ten minutes into episode two that we we move to the freighter and it and it kind of starts all over again. Um, uh, with the new setting but as a viewer you you know that the doctor is moving forward so it's not just repetitive it, it's it is going down to the next layer of the maze of, of the plot uh, that it takes you through yeah. and i think that works fantastically well it really just helps to ramp up the tension and, and the idea that this is a story that started in a cave on earth and now it and now it's expanded to, to a, a spaceship on the uh, on the outskirts of the solar system that's zooming towards the earth is is really well um uh realized and and it just adds momentum to the plot definitely yeah i guess as time goes on i guess because you've got sort of um seeds of doom um and invasion of time where it's a six-parter and they they figure out how to maybe more so seeds of doom here really but then you've got the two episodes haven't you where they're at the uh south yeah that's a perfect example. north yeah. or south pole uh and then chop it up into into a four-parter later and by now even you know the pace has picked up a bit so a four-parter needs to be broken up like that and then so by the time you get to mccoy era three episodes becomes the standard doesn't it so it's that thing of being able to yeah. tell a story more efficiently and, and, and quicker as time goes on yeah yeah just just the amount of stuff that happens and, and still having a large enough group of um of characters within the story who are all sort of on their own little journeys mm. um one, one of the slight it's not what well, slight regret i have about modern doctor who is that the, the so often when you've got a one-part story there is there is no time at all for different operators within that story to have their own plan a and plan b and then get thwarted or then have to react to the doctor's involvement and change to something else which is what you get in a in, in a longer story mm. and um and i do miss that because it, that that's part of the excitement of seeing people seeing these people cope when everything goes awry um with their with their plans or with their um, with the way that they've got everything set up, and, and to, to carry that, you, you really have got to have a fantastically strong cast who can make small parts really matter, um, and make um, a, a role like, for example, a middle-aged spaceship freighter captain into <laughs> uh, something so much more than just a generic. Uh, person who who's upset that, that she's not going to make her bonus, uh, and, and if you get someone of the caliber of Bill Reed uh, and let her loose on on a part like that, I think it, it's a real risk because she could very easily have um, done a um, done a Richard Briers, uh, yeah. but instead, <laughs> she, she, and, and Richard Briers is, is a fantastic actor who just decided to just piss about. Yeah. If, if you have a brutal opinion, well, but but then that was the. 
people have said it, he put on his costume and how how on earth could you play that role straight wearing wearing the chief caretaker's costume the only thing you can do is is blow it out to the max and maybe that's the justification for it yeah. but um, BAFTA winning actress Beryl Reed, who did win Best Supporting Actress uh, that year for uh, at the BAFTAs for her role in Smiley's People uh, as, as a uh, as his alcoholic retired distraught ex mentor, um, she totally she 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 just does not muck about at all. She she really brings uh, Beryl Reedian realness to to that particular role of which I am uh, immensely. Um, admiring yeah and and um <laughs> i'm cutting myself off now because okay you're ranting peter you're ranting <laughs> stop, <laughs> stop ranting about beryl there are people listening <laughs> <laughs> but as a kid i just thought this, this is awesome this is um uh you don't get this on star trek or or or, or other series uh and and you know she's just there being and, and i now learn you, you can see that eric Sayward has just watched uh, has really studied his cybermen stories and she's the base she's the commander of the base under siege who goes to pieces uh when when the cybermen get involved and that, that's a um a key factor in, in most cyberman stories mm-hmm. uh and uh yeah um he, he really i think nailed the best things about what made 60s cyberman stories so good and and just spun it up to a tempo that it, it was ridiculous to have even aimed for yeah uh, on, on the budget and on, particularly on the time scale, and I think the cast when they talk about um, Earthshot don't don't remember making it with much fondness because Peter Moffat, yeah, Peter Moffat, yeah, just worked them like dogs basically, and, and so it, they didn't really get to have fun, and the pressure was so intense because what they were doing was so far beyond what was really sensible to try and achieve in in a few weeks in TV Centre. Um, and, and isn't it incredible that it's the same director who di- directed this and Kinder stylistically, yeah, uh, as a part. Um, but it just shows that he was able to really get a, uh, a grip and a feel for the story and, and what it needed, and directed them both with such different styles that that, that completely, perfectly, I think, suited the uh, the story in question. Mm-hmm. Shame they ever let him write one though. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but maybe he earned a bit of indulgence. Yeah, because yeah, um, I mean, the impression you get from Matthew Waterhouse's book is that um, he was quite hard to work for. That, um, that mm. uh, particularly Matthew Waterhouse got a hard time from him, and that Beryl Reed did. Um, I think, according to Matthew Waterhouse's account, anyway. Um, There's a. Have you seen? There is a. Um, the studio footage for, for a few of these stories. I think, I think Thought of Doomsday has got about an hour of studio footage included. Yeah. And um, Earthshock has got an hour and 43 minutes mm. of unedited, uh, just, just the camera just rolling while they're in studio. And there's a, some really funny bits of Beryl. And bless her, she is, she is asking pertinent questions about mm. precisely what her lines mean, because it is that very Eric Saywoody dialogue, which could easily come from a Flash Gordon thing. Yeah. Uh, and there's one line that she has to give. It's um, so she has to turn to the cyber leader and say, "So now your transport has replaced the bomb." And she's like saying, "Well, would it? Is that an accusation? Or mm. <laughs> so now your transport has replaced the bomb? Or so now mm. your transport has replaced the bomb?" <laughs> it's a bit of a no, not the mind probe moment. Yeah. <laughs> like, this sentence actually mean? Why is she saying it aloud? 
but bless her, she asks for instructions and she gets them and then she delivers it exactly as instructed. Yeah, and I think that's, um, I, I think she, she gives that performance despite obviously those, because um, there's some suggestion that she got quite a bit of criticism from him as well. Um, I can't remember quite what it was that uh, that she was accused of and she was saying, you know, I've worked, you know, with kind of like the best directors and worked in theatre and stuff like that and I've never been kind of criticised like that before. Um, but that and the fact she clearly doesn't understand you, the, the impression you get from the bonus material she doesn't understand any of the script or what she's saying no no but, but she brings a truth to it but yeah but, that's what I mean so she's still able but, to, yeah, to bring that level of performance yeah because <laughs> <laughs> they talk about when she says um, about leaving warp or something like that that she she doesn't understand that concept either that it's uh, you know we just oh, have yeah. a place called warp. Like she's joking when she says then, then we pulled out of warp drive and yeah. like, turned left <laughs> <laughs> it's Begonia Terrace yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think she's got a tongue in cheek there but yeah. no yeah she's she clearly not of a scientific uh, bent no. but you don't have to be um, no. as long as you can deliver it with conviction but yeah of course to mo- to, and and well I ham it up a bit in my praise of her um, I, I do appreciate that to most a lot of people then she was she's just that woman who's always on blankety blank and celebrity squares so um, people didn't know that she had a background completely out of comedy but like John Pertwee she was someone who was famous for doing comedy roles who could also do serious stuff um, and uh, and in my ebullient praise of her I'm overshadowing everyone else because I think the whole cast is really good maybe Professor what's her name who, who does her somewhat flouncy death yeah. in, in, in the TARDIS uh, has, has a bit of a bit of a struggle making much of an impact but but the uh, the, the, the cave scenes in episode one are some just some of the creepiest spookiest moments that Doctor Who's ever ever delivered I think with, the, with those uh, with those troopers being hunted through the caves yeah and knowing that the doctor, and, and then cutting back to the Doctor and everyone who don't know that it's going on and it's getting closer to them the, the ramping up of the tension there is just um yeah, it's just magnificent. and really, really well, or nicely lit. I was going to say well lit. That's like the criticism you have to make of this era, but they're, they're lit properly for the for the for the atmosphere in the scenario, aren't they? Yeah, uh, yeah. As the, as the youngsters say, it was lit uh, in, yeah. in both ways. But <laughs> <laughs> actually, dark, and, and that's where um, again the Blu-ray restoration, if that's right, the right, right technically the right word to use. Um, it's particularly on, on Doctor Who DVDs when there's blackness on screen it often goes a little bit fuzzy because that's mm. when because DVD is a really compressed medium it's like listening to an MP3 of your, of your music uh, it, it's, it's pretty good but um, but it is a real technological feat to, to squeeze a whole story onto a, onto a DVD disc whereas Blu-ray is a whole different technology and it's much easier and they don't have to have the compression so um, and when the screen gets dark that's when you can really see an improvement I think mm. particularly because it doesn't go at all splodgy or, or um, uh, the, the, the degradations of, of very, very darkness um, are much smoother on, on the Blu-ray. Yeah. yeah, it's great. And then, obviously, okay, we've got to talk about the ending, the the tragic death of Adric. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so I turned, I turned seven in the same year that my all-time favourite Doctor Who person who I desperately wanted to be got blown into a million pieces. And then that Christmas, I sat down to watch a nice new cartoon on Channel 4 about a snowman, and that didn't go well either. <laughs> and um, I think it toughened you up that year. Because um, it, it's really shocking that they did decide to do that to him. Mm. Um, that was accidental pun. I make as many deliberate puns yeah. as I can, but that one was <laughs> accidental. Um, I mean, it, 
do you think it was the right decision to let a companion die? Because Moffat know. has said, I think it was Moffat who said, he, Stephen Moffat. Yeah. He said, I think I could say that, that you should not do that in a program that children are watching. Oh, that's a bit strange. Yeah, I don't know. You've got, you've got to have stakes, haven't you? If you're putting these characters in mortal peril every single week. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's like it's that Bambi's mum. Uh, um, or walk ship down. Yeah. Uh, yeah uh, and, or any of, it, any of your brothers Grimm. Never mind the brothers Grimm. You know, kids don't mind. Yeah. Having, I mean, even look at Harry, Harry Potter and things like that. You know, kind of uh, bringing it up to date. You know, he's 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 orphaned and everything like that, isn't he? It's uh, there's there's usually in in sort of children's stories. There's there's that element of tragedy. Um. So yeah, I mean, I think if it's going to happen to anybody, he is sort of cut off from his own universe. It would be difficult to write him out, I guess. Where would he sort of settle down or anything? Yeah, yeah unless, you know, at some point in the near future, they'd found a race of super intelligent aliens who were trapped in some kind of bubble thing by the master and that they needed a genius to, to bond with to go off and explore the universe. But yeah. there's no odds of that happening in the next few weeks. No. <laughs> <laughs> But no, that that is my alternative, and I'm jumping ahead here. But I could imagine him having taken Professor Hater's role in um, in Time Flight and, and going up and bonding with the with the Watsits at the end of that. Yeah. But but that would be but but it, it is just perfectly fitting, and mm. and right up until the end credits roll, it's flawlessly handled as well. The, the, when Tegan and Nissa reacting to it with just complete shock, and the, and the silence. Mm. Uh, is is really eerie and and uh, yeah, I think it um, I think it's really well handled. Yeah, and the doctor right up to the last minute is I've got to save Adric, and uh, like you've seen him save his companions hundreds of times before. It's uh, mm. yeah, I know the first time I watched it, it was like it was on uh, on UK Gold, and I didn't know you know what was going to happen. I don't think I don't think I'd read the book at that stage. It's uh, so yeah, it, it hit yeah. me at the time as well. It's like wow, yeah. yeah. I, 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 so I specifically remember I was on laying on the sofa and, and, the, and it ended. I couldn't believe it happened. And that precise moment, my mum walked in and said, "What are you doing? Have you been mucking around with that remote control, turning off the volume?" <laughs> <laughs> I fixed it. <laughs> what? Uh, yeah, those little moments stay with you. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I guess at the time there was no doubt that that's what had happened as well. It wasn't a case of will they save him next week. Yeah, I think we might have talked about it at school, whether that was possible or not. Mm. And we kind of agreed that because of what the doctor had said, it clearly wasn't. He'd be breaking some rule or something. But it, it was strange that, in our memories, it had never been even broached before. The idea that the doctor could go back in time and save somebody's life who had already died. Mm. And I think, and I don't like it when that happens endlessly no. uh, recently, because it just completely undermines it. There is no peril anymore. The first first off was in, in the McGann thing, where the TARDIS just miraculously brings um, Grace and Co back to life. Yeah, that's really but odd, isn't it? Have to be a magical power that the TARDIS has mm. by just rewinding to before people died, and and just think that's really silly because this is a series, and you've got to have a reason to not do that now every single week. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. So yeah. Very moving, and, and uh, one of the one of the best companion exits of all, I think. Mm, yeah, but definitely one of the most memorable. Yeah, but if Louise Jameson happened to watch it, she was green with envy because that's precisely how she wanted Leela to get to go out. Yeah, uh, and it's got echoes even when uh, you get to um, 
the Matt Smith era, uh, and he talks about he's talking to Rory's dad, isn't he? And he says, you know, what what happened to the other people you've travelled with? Oh. Um, and the doctor says, well, sometimes they die, and it's uh, you immediately think of Adric, don't you? If, you? if you've got, kind of got knowledge of the of the old series, it's it does kind of echo like that, I think. And then the new adventures, it was always uh, Adric, wasn't it? When the doctor was, I seem to camera specific stories, but anytime the doctor was feeling guilt or was being haunted by his past dis- um, decisions and, and consequences, there'd always be like a dream of Adric or something like that. So. It really mattered. Mm. Mm. And so with that just dramatic high point, the, um, <laughs> the game close. And, uh, and, and what can we say? It's just, uh, just, just classic after classic. Yeah. The end. <laughs> <laughs> Except uh, we've got a few more weeks to fill and no money. So they made time flight. So they made time flight, God bless them. Do you remember at school when you'd get, um, it would be like the last day of term, and your teachers are all completely burned out, and and you've done the Christmas play or whatever already, and and they at our schools they always used to do a bring your games to school day, yeah, which at the time I thought was just the awesome, amazing outburst of, um, of of letting us do exactly what we wanted. But in retrospect, it was just the teachers just wanted us to go away and let them write their Christmas cards yeah. at work <laughs> for all their friends, and and we would just bring games. Did you do the same thing? We just bring, you just bring games in, and you're just allowed to play them all day, yeah, all games and stuff. Yeah. Um, and I kind of think that is what the 20th century Doctor Who finales pretty much mostly were sort of embodying. It's just everyone is absolutely exhausted and the money has all accidentally been spent. And uh, But hey, let's just get out there and put the show on. And uh, and that's the best way to enjoy time flight, I think. Yeah, there's a great line in the making of where Peter Davison calls it a combination of follies, which I thought was excellent. <laughs> Yeah, because it's not just that one or two things didn't quite come off, is it? Yeah, <laughs> you can't say that. Um, yeah, it's the uh, it's the alien costumes. It's the uh, the terrain that um, you know. The same this guy designed the terrain, and I said a plane is supposed to have landed on this, and it's incredibly <laughs> rocky. Uh, yes. And he says, "Yeah, so I built this diorama, and the idea was that it looks really good as long as it's shot from a long way away." Yeah. Uh, and then they arrived, and the, the director got straight in with all the close-ups. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, the uh, well, I didn't know you had a New York stopover, Jeremy. Uh, mm. it, it is a line that, that uh, I've just misquoted, actually. But um, what's yeah. the use of a good quotation if you can't change it? But. Um, yeah, the ca- even even the cast who aren't knackered, the guest mm. cast, a lot of them do just sort of seem slightly bewildered, yeah. <laughs> uh, but but uh, just give it the best shot. Yeah, even when um, they're not hypnotized. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and- I, 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 it's the the whole beginning part where. But for several seconds, everyone is distraught about Adric's death. And then just to make things worse, <laughs> the Doctor fails to take them to the Great Exhibition, which really ruins their day. Um, <laughs> they must have just decided we, we can't. I mean, people say, I mean, yes, that is, that is not a good way to handle the death of a character in an ongoing series. But at the same time, they just thought, okay, we've pushed this as far as we can. It was probably going a bit far killing him off. Let's not have an episode of everyone crying and dealing out there, dealing with their issues. Yeah. Um, that's not, that we just haven't got the scope to do that. So let's just kind of crack on. Um, yeah, they do. Yeah. 
I mean, watch it. I think this, this first time for years I've watched them in order, um, and you do quickly forget, don't you, that they've just uh, they've just undergone this this tragedy. Um, I guess that you know <laughs> would have made the dangers of um, of traveling the TARDIS very real for the others. Um, it could have been interesting if it had made them a little bit more risk averse or something. I suppose. Um, mm, yeah, but um, and, and this is and I'd forgotten watching it now. I had forgotten how um, the Doctor quickly uh, displays his unit pass and and gets believed, and so all of that is cut out. And and within like fifteen minutes into the story, everyone is just it absolutely believes that this this the uh, well, no, nobody thinks that the Concorde has actually crashed. Yeah. Everyone just accepts that. Oh, right, okay, it's been transported through time. It's yeah. been stolen. <laughs> um, can you help us, Doctor? Uh, and that's quite uh, 60s. That's quite Troutonish. Yeah. Uh, well, I was. I mean, the, the heart back is to the faceless ones. Although the faceless ones is um, a real thriller. Um, yeah. That's one of my favourite trans. I, I think if faceless ones got, ever got discovered in, in full, it would be uh, reappraised in the same way that Enemy of the World has been because it's got it's just really tense in a, a lot of the time, and, and and that doesn't come across so well on audio and on uh, yeah. tele snaps. No, um, I agree. Yeah, I, I and time flight is not. Um, but yeah, there, there are a lot of parallels there. Obviously, it's Gatwick on that one, isn't it? But you've got the Doctor interacting with the the airport controller or whatever it's called, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Captain Scofield, you must listen to me, and not yeah. the Doctor not being believed if they um, are making a story last six episodes rather than four. Yeah, yeah, there is that. And then we've got um, Anthony Ainley <laughs> as as Khalid. Yeah, um, so I think the weight of you, and, and now, particularly having seen Michelle Gomez's interpretation of the part, yeah. it, it kind of makes you realise that the master is a cosplayer. That mm-hmm. that is his thing, it, <laughs> and her thing. It's not. Um, he isn't doing it for a reason. No, and saying that he's doing it for no good, missing the point. He just he enjoys getting dressed up, yeah. and he comes up with all these schemes as an excuse to get dressed up, not not the other way around. Yeah, uh, I don't know if you it that way, maybe. It, Makes sense. Yeah, definitely. It's uh, it's it's an odd one, but I think with that one, you can you can hear his voice in it in a way that you you couldn't with the portrait, even though he's he's kind of just saying like weird mystical spells. I, I don't know. I, I I felt like you could hear Rainley's voice in it quite easily. Yeah, and and you've got the fact that it's time as a time travel story immediately yeah. um, gets you thinking of well, who else can travel through time? Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, there is the, the like you say the, um, the the criticism that most people make is that he he remains in character when there's nobody else around. Um, <laughs> yes, but I, I do that when I'm dressed up as being like and genius. Yeah, um, well, not genius. <laughs> and I, I imagine that um, the the master as Razor in World Enough and Time probably did that as well. Yes, actually, yeah, yeah that, that's really, and and World of Time was that was um, that that was definitely the first time I, I really liked John Sim as the master. I wish, yeah, I, I wish I'd seen him like that. I think he absolutely nailed it there. And I don't know if it's Michelle Gomez being a good influence on him or if it's just, um, but then, but no, because he's doing it. Just, he's not copying her. Um, he's very much still his own version. Yeah, but, um, but think... he's got that. It, 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 the manicness is is not. Um, is not all there is to him mm. uh, in Wilder. He's got a, a laconic wryness, which um, 
Actually, Connick's the wrong word, but yeah, that, that the master's wry sense of humour, which does cut through them all, and 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 definitely goes through uh, Delgado and Hainley. Yeah, um, uh, he, can, he can be sort of sardonic and kind of know how ridiculous it all is, but still be doing it. Um, I think there's whereas, an interview where he said that was kind of how he wanted to do it all along, um, but but you know couldn't with the way Russell T Davis had written it. Um, but it's yeah, great it, that he got that it, chance to do it because I think he's brilliant in that story. Or those two, those two yeah. episodes. Yeah, yeah, and and it's an interesting example of something that was moulded by Russell T Davis, but being being picked up and worked on by Moffat, which we don't see so often. With them not, with there having been no, I, I wish that we'd had a doctor who had had spanned both eras you know either, either tenant staying for one more year or matt smith starting a year earlier i wouldn't really mind which way around but it it would have been fascinating to see yeah how, um, a, a doctor having more than one producer would, would be because we've not seen that yet with the new who yeah definitely maybe, i think tenant, maybe we will tenants seem to watch too long yeah yeah if the rumors are to be believed yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah i think tenants feels like the closest we've got doesn't it because he it seems like he once he found out Stephen moffat was um, taking over that that was nearly what persuaded him to stay um, so yeah that, that would have been very interesting Peter mm-hmm. Paldi's funny because he, he talks about having been asked to stay but then there's interviews where Chris where it's said that Chris Chibnall only took the job on the basis that he could cast a female doctor so uh, yeah no it doesn't quite add up does it yeah, yeah. yeah I've, I've seen versions I mean, there's probably both things probably nearly came to be. Mm. Um, yeah. Mm. Yeah, I think that would have been possibly more jarring, would have been Capaldi under Chris Chibnall compared to Tennant under Moffat. Yeah, because I think, um, yeah, Chib uh, Chibnall's style is, is, is just quite very different, particularly, and Moffat just got more and more Moffaty as it went on. Yeah. Um, and, uh, uh, Maybe with a bit of a break, a bit, bit of a bit of fresh air came in with, with Bill in the final season, mm. but um, yeah, those would have been really interesting. Yeah, time flight though. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, Tegan leaves. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. yeah, Tegan leaves. I could not believe it. Here we are. We killed my favourite companion, like eight days ago because it was Monday's yeah so eight days ago my favourite companion got killed and now my second favourite companion has left and the doctor's just buggered off without her I was I was bereft by that ending and I thought what is the point of this programme anymore <laughs> it's just the doctor and the boring one of his companions <laughs> and and I think there were no clues at all that, um, that Tegan hadn't really left until the the, the run up to season twenty, and suddenly she was there in the in the publicity photos when the new series was coming back. So, and, and I've since discovered that there never was really any intention of getting rid, rid of her. It was entirely a bluff. But it was a very strange bluff to pull. Yeah, they uh, talk about that, don't they? That uh, on the making of that, that she was fully aware that she'd signed the contract and everything. But uh, sure. it would have been a very, I would say, brutal. Obviously, the way they finished uh, Adric was was brutal, but. It's kind of brutally in its own way, I think, that they didn't get a goodbye if if that had been the end that she just got left behind. Yeah. Um foreshadowing although foreshadowing her actual exit a bit. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh But yeah, it was always gonna be hard to, to write out a character. A char- when a character's got conflict with the doctor anyway, and is obviously not just gonna marry someone, hmm. uh, writing, writing out Tegan was always gonna be a, a challenge. Uh and I, and I think it was fairly well handled in the end. I, yeah. I, I don't know. Um, all the references to her job and getting to Heathrow throughout the season probably really helped sell it at the time as well. 
it was, just, it, was it was a story arc, wasn't it? Mm. They they weren't invented in two thousand and five. It was a um, a story arc right from Logopolis through 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 to uh, time flight. Yeah, definitely. That's but who knows? If only she had a cousin who might mysteriously get involved yeah. <laughs> in some uh, antimatter activities in a basement in uh, in Amsterdam. <laughs> That's a story for another day. <laughs> it's small. Because yeah. <laughs> the um, the thing in this series, again, watching them all in order, um, really strikes me is the the amount that you get. Um, the, the guest cast inside the TARDIS and, and how just open the Doctor is about letting people wander in and showing them it. You know, oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, and people, Black, Black, it's another thing that Black Orchid gets some criticism for, isn't it? That he just yeah. says, look at my time machine, everybody. I'm obviously not a murderer. Yeah. But it's not, it's <laughs> not, it does not hang true at all. Um, but um, but the, that's them experimenting with trying to get through a story in half the usual time, I think. So, yeah. Yeah, um, the time flight and stuff as well. You've got, you got the pilots taking taking control of it. And just the number of people uh, trying to pilot it throughout the series as well. Is, uh, yeah. they, they, they play with it a bit. And, and, mm. and uh, yeah, maybe in retrospect, some, sometimes it's not really all uh, um, that convincing or, or, or you might think that's that's demystifying it a bit but i quite mm. like that the tardis is treated as a a vehicle and a home yeah rather than than just a, a, a magic box for transporting you or a science thing um it also has the role of being these people's home and and of being a, a vehicle that can be piloted um uh, is a uh yeah, I think it makes it makes the TARDIS more interesting. It makes the TARDIS a more interesting part of the story than it than it had been for a long time. Yeah, the the thing about the 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 pilots reminded me of the uh, you know the pilots being able to intuit how to control it some to some degree because they were pilots. Reminds me of the, the curse of the black spot when you've got Captain uh, Avery mm. that to some extent he's able to uh, to, to kind of intuit how to, how to do it as well because he said well basically it's a ship and, and these are the, the basic controls that a ship needs to have so uh, yeah that kind of packed back to that oh, well reminded me obviously it's not yeah. the future but uh, yeah. it's a <laughs> yeah. nice idea that there's that, that a ship has a basic set of controls that it needs to have and if you if you are conversant with one type of vehicle you, you'll have a basic idea of it yeah there's a logic to it isn't there yeah, yeah. Um, and I suppose that the modern series take on it as well is that it's a negotiation, and the, the telepathic circuits can can help to uh, to pilot it as well. So, you, so you've got that element of it. That but yeah, exactly. Yeah, and and the, all of these things, depending on what the requirements of the audience in a particular era is, yeah. you'll know that some things that a modern audience will want you to explain why. Uh, why the doctor hasn't fallen in love with somebody and married them, mm. or why um, people can't see it. Whereas. 20 years ago, audiences had other things on their minds that you have to go to lengths to explain. Uh, and, and it just, that just tells you what, what, um, what can be taken for granted in, in, in a story in some areas and, mm-hmm. and can't in others. And it's really interesting that we've got Doctor Who as a sort of control group of itself. That, that what, it, it, by watching it, you can learn the sort of things that a viewer in the 60s would or wouldn't have cared about. Like in so many 60s stories, there's the, um, if spaceships are going to land somewhere, it's always about them following a homing signal to be able to land. Yeah. Uh, because that's what happens in war films. And, uh, and those are the films that the, the writers grew up watching and or, or probably actually fighting in. Mm. So the, the th- things that seem like a glaring oversight to viewers in one decade 
uh, are, are things that actually just don't need explaining at all to, to, to viewers at, at the time. Mm. So um, yeah, it's funny how the what, what we expect of it can, will, will, will shift. Mm. Uh, and then, as you say, there's the the final disc in the set, uh, the bonus features. Um, probably the centerpiece is Matthew Sweet's interview with Peter Davison. Isn't it good? Yeah, it? it was lovely. Really nice. Really, yeah, really extensive. Over an hour of Matthew Sweet really knows his stuff. He's yeah. able to ask about Davison's parents and um, uh, and all sorts of things about Doctor Who. Where you know you know you've got an interviewer who. If he isn't one of us, I think he is one of us in terms mm. of being a fan. But even so, even then, for all of his questions and for, and for all of Davison's answers, he's well informed and can come in with little comments about other stories. Uh, it um, it really is just uh, wonderfully professional. Yeah, it's nice to get that. In the last couple of years, we've had Peter Davison's autobiography. Um, he did that really great interview in the Doctor Who magazine, which I mean, I think got Doctor Who magazine in some trouble, didn't it? For uh, for breaching uh, their um, their sort of political bias rules. Or, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's talking about um, <laughs> yeah. Boris Johnson and Brexit and stuff like that. Yes, indeed, yeah. Um, but yeah, not long after they did the big Tom Baker one, which was kind of loads of unused interviews and a new one all stitched together. Um, they sat down with Peter Davison and did this big sprawling interview, which I thought was excellent. Um, so between that and the, the autobiography and then this, this interview, uh, you feel like you get kind of a really good insight. I mean, some of the stuff in the interview on the disc, stories you've held heard elsewhere but then there's some really good questions i think matthew sweet comes out with when he says something like you know did being doctor who make you happy that makes him stop and think um yeah. there's other times he has like a bit of a stock answer maybe ready um but there's, there's a few questions he gets in like that that are really good really revealing i think yeah it really hits the mark yeah mm. um what else have we got on that disc i'm just looking oh there's time crash of course um yeah. which I know a lot of people are very, very fond of, and, and I'm not one of them. But um, I, I think I'm the only person who managed to gr- grinch and gripe his way through time crash, while everyone else was gushing about how wonderful it was. And uh, and I'm just there thinking, they've totally broken the fourth wall. I don't believe this at all. This is just two actors having a conversation about how awesome they both think they are. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's just me, because everyone else seems to find it lovely and heartwarming. So good good, good for everyone else. Yeah, I find it quite charming. Um, the, yeah, it's, I think I'm, I'm a Grinch on some on that <laughs> level. You were my doctor. Like, I think that's, you wouldn't say that if that was really you. But anyway. Yeah, that's true. Uh, yeah, I'll tell you what, I love that. The, um, the, have, you, have you had a chance to watch yet the, um, the 1993 Panopticon clip? No, that's on no, I haven't watched that bit yet. Very, there's so much to get through, but um, I, I, I came to it, and it's um, it's so it's, uh, Janet Fielding and Matthew Waterhouse being interviewed by Nick Briggs uh, at Panopticon '93, and it's um, that, a it's amazing how how young how long ago 1993 seems now. Yeah. At the time, it must have felt like casting their minds back to the distant past to talk mm-hmm. about Doctor Who 12 years earlier, but now it looks like it's just sort of you know in the immediate aftermath. Um, and uh, and it's lovely hearing them, and 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 that's the interview where uh, Janet Fielding really caused some ructions at the time because she was she talked very fondly about her time on Doctor Who, but then she was absolutely unambiguous about saying maybe the reason it's not come back is because it's a stale old idea that really should be left behind, and you should make new science fiction instead. Um, sort of gasps from the audience. Right. <laughs> but, um, but but she she you know but that's what I think that's what you want from an interviewer you want them to actually say what they really think and not yeah. just give out platitude um, and what she took and, and she couldn't can't imagine in ninety three she can't imagine a version of Doctor Who other than 
patricianal mm. uh, male figure with uh, a screaming girl or a girl who people think is screaming. And she makes a distinction. She says that people always assume that the girl in Doctor Who is just screaming all the time. And actually, the, the vast majority of them don't. Mm. But it's been such an, uh, such an implanted um, archetype, the idea that that's all the girls do has unfortunately become such a thing in popular culture that she thinks it could never be overturned. And, and subsequently, I think Russell T. Davis and co. Have, have proved that that actually could be achieved. And I think, I'm sure she would be pleased that it has. But um, it was really bold of that. And I think it, but it, mar- it marks her out as a, uh, a really interesting person and just a, just a really, someone who's got a really, really strong views on stuff, that even that she's prepared to say that to an audience when she knows that most of them are going to be mortified yeah. by it. Um, but people, people, people do take it politely, you know, and, and, and you know, um, and uh, then uh, Nick Courtney turns up and, and joins in, and he su- he suggests having a, but uh, what if they brought it back with a female Doctor Janet? Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so that's who could imagine that ever really happened. Yeah. <laughs> does Elton, so good, uh, that's, aware of that? Watching that one anyway, yeah, that's good yeah. To, to go to that. Yeah, yeah, I'll definitely get that one watched. Um, I, I don't think I was aware of that, but I think there was always that impression in the '90s that Janet Fielding was keen to distance herself because um, wasn't she Paul McGann's agent um, yes. and kind yeah. of steered him clear of Big Finish, <laughs> as I understand it. Right, yeah, but then she didn't stop it. I wonder if she was at the time that he did the TV movie. She obviously didn't tell him not to do that. No. So, yeah, but, um, Big Finish. I, I remember her giving. I remember comments from her when she was first. They were trying to get her to do some big finishes, mm. and she would just say, "But I'm, I'm not an actress anymore. I don't, I don't do acting is the thing I don't do." But obviously, uh, eventually, the uh, world famous big finish lunches yeah. uh, um, got attempted in, and, and I have really enjoyed. I've, I've loved the um, the season nineteen crew stories that they've done. Yeah, uh, they, they, they've really got it. Uh, got it, nailed it down really well, and and, and right, and they're writing stories that play to all the characters' strengths, and uh, and press the nostalgia buttons, but at the same time, filling things in with with, with new stuff. You know, it's not just going through the motions for nostalgia's sake. They're they're, they're telling new stories, but often with I, I love. Um, I think the best of Big Finish's outputs often are the uh, the new adventures and missing adventures that they've uh, adapted. Mm. Because they've got so many to choose from that when they do them, when they adapt those books, they're picking the absolute best of the best in, to, to do. And so you get a, a really good story uh, whenever it's one of them. Yeah. Uh, Cold Fusion is probably the most recent one I've listened to. I thought that was terrific. Yes. Yes, it really is an absolute classic. Yeah. Yeah. And you've got the Seventh Doctor's reaction to Adric and stuff in that as well, which, uh, which is really good. Mm. So. Mm. so coming up next is, is Season 18. Um, yes. In, in style. Um, although it's they've gone for an, I'm, I was slightly surprised that they've gone for another Tom Baker. Um, so, so soon. I thought they might have jumped back and done a Pertwee would have been the, maybe the obvious thing to do. But, but then it's all about the, the, the quality of the material, isn't it? I suppose the Pertwee stuff is going to need a bit more work. Yeah. Um, I suppose we've already got Spearhead from Space on Blu-ray as well, haven't we? Yeah. Um, that, that's up there with Sharder, isn't it? It's one of the most re-released stories of all time. Yeah. Yeah, it seemed like they were doing um, each Doctor's first season. That's the, I thought that was going to be the pattern or the template that would would continue. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's interesting they've gone for season eighteen. Mm. I, I suppose I mean part of the thing is the interviews interviewees are available. Yeah, um, we've still got plenty of people around to, to to get on board. And I don't know what they're going to do when it gets to the uh, the shorter seasons. Once once they get to uh, to the late eighties. 
that the uh, the boxes will get considerably smaller. I mean, you could just do you could fit the entire McCoy era quite comfortably on on the same number of discs that season nineteen fits on. I mean, actually, I mean, season nineteen doesn't really need eight discs. Black Orchid does not need an entire disc to itself. They could easily have um, accommodated them, you know, two stories per disc or something. But um, yeah. but you can see why not. I mean, it makes a lovely lovely set. Yeah, yeah, it's nice to be able to flick through them, isn't it, and uh, and see each story individually. Yeah, without regrets at all. Um, and then there's obviously the seasons where they, they've got the missing stories as well. Yeah, I hope they go back into a black and white one soon, but um, mm. I don't know how they're going to do that. They've done with, for the Avengers, um, they've, the real Avengers, uh, they've gone back and done um, the all of the, uh, the Honor Blackman episodes that are in black and white, but were recorded on, on old style low definition TV, like lower than 625 line TV, 60s TV of the kind that Doctor Who used the early Troughton era, those are only out on DVD. Um, whereas the, the newer ones were all made on, I say newer, <laughs> jokes 1966, <laughs> modern stuff, you know, were all made on, <laughs> were all shot on really high quality film to be exported to America. Um, right. So uh, so those ones, uh, the Emma Peel era and beyond, uh, have come out on Blu-ray and, mm. and are absolutely pristine because they are filmed in high definition on film. Um, so... They haven't gone back and put old early sixties TV onto Blu-ray, but I, I really hope they will with Doctor Who. I mean, I know it will show up the fact that it is less than six hundred lines of information mm. per per frame for them, mm. but um, but they'll still be able to to make it look as good as it possibly can, and that's what Blu-ray lets them do. There's no need to compress it at all. So, yeah. um, fingers crossed. And I'm sure they won't pass up the opportunity to sell another load of uh, limited edition box sets. <laughs> absolutely not and oh if, if Marco Polo must be out there all of season one is out there apart from it's found yeah Marco Polo um I know I'm beginning to suspect the Omni rumour isn't true I don't know I don't. No, no 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 it's definitely true <laughs> Just for some technical reason, they're, 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 they're eking it out because they enjoy the publicity. Uh, and in a few years' time, they'll, they'll secretly reveal that actually they had them all along. That's and definitely then what it is. And then time animating them will we'll look like fools. Yeah, it's, it's worth it. Yeah. It's so frustrating, isn't it, when you hear like about um, Web of Fear Episode 3, that it was there and it was found and then somebody nicked it. Yeah, yeah. And that's the worst thing. Yeah, and, and, and the idea that discover the revelation of their value yeah. isn't could turn out to be an incentive for people to hoard them mm. rather than ah, oh, it's, it's it's unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, I, I can't understand that instinct to want. To, uh, I'm the only one that can watch this. It's, no, no. I mean, I'd, I'd want everyone to know. I'd, I'd yeah. want to bask in the glory of of, of handing it in. Yeah, definitely. Um, um, I'd, I'd, I'd want I'd want to be interviewed by Nick Briggs as I handed over the canister. Yeah. <laughs> And you, you want to be, you want to talk to people about Doctor Who. You don't <laughs> have something only you can watch, and you can't talk to about anybody. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, like but again, we're so lucky to have the telly snaps and, and the off-air recordings. Um, yeah. Just it's a good comparison with um, on the Avengers DVD that I've, got, I've just been watching of the uh, the last uh, on a Blackman season. Um, it's from the early sixties, uh, and, and from that yeah, there are some episodes. Of course, lots of episodes of their the series one of the Avengers before on a Blackman joined that are missing. Uh, I think the majority of them are missing. Mm. Um, but, but yeah, lots of them are missing. Uh, and, for, and for some of them, they don't have off air um, tele, uh, audio recordings like we do. So they, they have got telesnaps, I think, by the same guy who did a lot of the Doctor Who ones. Um, mm. And they just have to have somebody 
reading a um, a summary of the a, a sort of novelization really of, of, of the plot while yeah. the jelly snaps come up and, and it's really well done and they've, they've absolutely made the best of it but it makes you realize how lucky we are mm. we have at least got every audio and and most stories with jelly snaps yeah but we want more <laughs> I know it seems unlikely in a way, doesn't it? But it's yeah, we are lucky we've got that, and the number that have turned up and stuff, and that they've put money into animating them is. Uh, yeah, I'm really excited for the Macro Terror. I think that's a really good call, and it's because it, it's not, um, you know, it's not got the Daleks or the Cybermen in it. It's not in itself. A, a, it's not a. It's, it's an. It's a. It's a normal Doctor Who story. Yeah. So it's really that they've that they're prepared to extend that kind of investment to recreating normal Doctor Who stories as well as exceptional Doctor Who stories and I think it's one that um, is going to really benefit as, as get, I bet it's going to get a real reappraisal uh, once people can, can see it definitely yeah. yeah and something you can do something really impressive with the with the macro I think uh, yes gonna be, uh, <laughs> you know compared to I mean you, you've only seen the photos and stuff where it's kind of on the back of a truck or whatever but you can you can have them as these huge freestanding uh, massive creatures I think it'll look really impressive. It, it's one crab infestation that I can't wait to get. <laughs> on that bombshell. And, <laughs> <laughs> and, and I will be. In fact, it's going to be on the big screen, isn't it? They're doing a BFI screening of it as well. Uh, not for a good few months yet. But, um, but it's, it's, it's in the BFI's diary, uh, Macro Terror on the big screen. Ah, right. Because the, the, the Blu ray's out in March, isn't it? I think it's not, not too yeah, long. Away, yeah. Isn't it? yeah. And so they said March, and one assumes that probably means June. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Want to get the interest up, so fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah, can't wait at all. Well, thank you very much for joining me. It's been a pleasure discussing season 19 with you. Thank you. It's been, it's been a pleasure to, to, to go over it. And, and yeah, uh, it, it's, we're just really lucky that our, a show that we love is getting so much attention and effort lavished upon letting us enjoy it even more, aren't we? Definitely. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's a really nice set and, uh, it's great. It's, it's nice to have that communal. I mean, you get it when there's new episodes, but just a communal thing of, uh, it's like when it's been on repeated on Twitch recently as well. And, and everybody's kind of got the box set around the same time and it sparks all those new conversations on Twitter and, and you say reappraisals and, uh, new yeah, kind of memes really, and things. Really yeah, it really is a special TV series. It, it really does have that ability to interest people from such completely diverse viewpoints and, and, and people who are different generations and, and everybody's finding their own way of enjoying it and things that uh, spark for them about it. Uh, it it's, it's brilliant to see it um, getting new leases of life. Absolutely. Uh, so where can we find you on Twitter? Yes, uh, please do say hello uh, if you've made it this, this. If you put up with listening to me for this long, please say hello <laughs> on on Twitter. Uh, I, I am uh, very Pete Lambert is my is my name on Twitter. Uh, or my my actual handle is prof underscore quite a mess, which was a hilarious uh, Halloween thing a while ago that I then decided to stick with because I love a good pun. It's very good. That's very it. good. Yeah, uh... <laughs> I love a bad. I love bad pun even more. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm at trap one underscore. Uh, you can find all our previous episodes, um, at trap one.podbean.com and you can leave a review on iTunes, which would be very nice, or even just kind of, uh, a star rating, which, uh, thank you for everyone that's done that so far. Much appreciated. 
Yeah, I, I, I can't remember how I first found your podcast. I'm trying to think now. I think some, somebody was just tweeting about it. Someone I followed retweeted you. And uh, yeah, I'm really glad I did it. Um, it's really great that you get a really nice range of people on it. And, and sometimes you have to scrape the barrel with the likes of me. But generally, <laughs> generally you get really interesting guests. Yeah, it's been really good. Um, I, it took me a while. I wanted to do a podcast for a while. And it, it took me a while to sort of think of a format that would be a bit different to, to the other ones out there. Um, and then, yeah, I just thought you could kind of get a range of different people on and... Rather than be a podcast that just talks about books or just talks about the episodes, it's just talk about anything that comes up, really. So uh, it's, uh, it's one you can dip in and out of, and you don't necessarily have to listen to each week and stuff as well. So. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's great if you do, obviously. That's, uh, <laughs> that's even better. <laughs> we take your notes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's a quiz later. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, and thank you very much for listening at home. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Goodbye. Bye bye.